Hello everybody and welcome to episode number 74 of the Rewatch Project with Hannah and Mike. I am Mike and with me as always is Hannah. How are you today? Um, well, thank you. I'm glad to hear us. So uh, what are we talking about tonight, Hannah? We are talking about part two of the epic miniseries V. Yes, from 1983. You know, let's be covered part one of that last time. Uh, so this is a, um, a brief uh, part two of a four-part sorbet uh, as we take pause between seasons three and four of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, In the past, we did this when we covered HBO's Watchmen, Mm -hmm. and uh, this time we are picking two um, pieces of television each. Hannah is doing um, the pilot. Hannah's choices are going to be the pilot episode of Modern Family. Yep. And uh, what was the other one? Fringe. Fringe, the pilot episode of Fringe. Uh, I have decided to put all of my... um, Eggs in one basket, so to speak. And we are covering both parts of the two-part miniseries V uh, from 1983. And we are talking about part two tonight, Hannah. So uh, do you want to give us a tale of the tape on this episode? Sure. The plot says, A resistance movement is formed in Los Angeles under the medical scientist Julie Parrish. Visited dissidents opposing their leader's plans join their cause to fight the alien oppression by leader John and his right-hand Diana. Okay. We've had two pieces of feedback, but we're going to wait until the end of the episode um, to talk about them because one of the subject lines says, don't read this until you've watched part two of V. Um, And since, uh, you know, once we finish V, we're moving on to something completely different. I thought it would be better to read it in this episode so it's fresh in both of our minds and we can discuss it, but not. Spoiler me before I've watched the, all the listeners. episode. All, all the listeners. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a great point. I noticed um, on social media that uh, our social media friend and friend of Chinestroke versus Punter, Dean, did a rewatch mm-hmm. the other weekend. Uh, Dean is. No, a, he's doing it this weekend, Big Holiday Week. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's watching all five parts, isn't he? Yeah. He's watching the, yeah, the he's sequel watching as well. The whole lot. Uh, Dean's amazing. He, he, um, he does an annual one day watch of the extended Lord of the Rings every year mm. uh, and he usually has some sort of theme thing so that's a good one because I think I'm about the same age as Dean and um, so that's a, I mean that's gosh nearly 10 hours so nearly yeah. 10 hour for all I if you watch V it. and V the final battle that's uh, that's a lot so good on him um, well um, in that case as we're not going to be doing um, any uh, feedback until the end of the show do a quick little bit of housekeeping um, I mean, let's get into it. Yeah, um, just a quick reminder that we appreciate reviews on Apple Podcasts, mm-hmm. and uh, we certainly appreciate emails at rewatchprojectpodcast at gmail and you can also find us on social media, um, specifically Instagram and Twitter mm-hmm. at rewatchproj. So that's rewatch p r o j, and um, yeah, check out our friend shows, including Chinstroke vs. Spencer, uh, Film Bastards, His Film, Her Movie. Uh, the Iron Sequel, The Good, Bad and the Odd, and It's Demi Landfall, so go and check out all of those. Uh, but for now, yeah, we, um, we will, uh, we're we going to hit pause in a moment. Are you looking forward to this, Hannah? What, what are your feelings? I am. As, I'm really You're at the midway point. Of, yeah, uh, no, I'm looking forward to getting into it and seeing how it all wraps itself up. Yes, okay, cool. Right, well, let's um, hit pause, and then when we return, um, it will be just moments for you, gentle listener, but it will be one hour and 40 minutes, um, probably even longer because of our... Um, 
joy assassin children and weak bladders <laughs> will probably mean that uh, it, might be a couple of hours two, yeah, two and a half hours until we come back yeah. uh, and then we will uh, we will have a discussion of the second and final part of V from 1983 so uh, we'll be oh I've completely forgotten a huge amount of stuff that I was going to mention as well. Um, also, uh, once we have finished the conversation, stick around for um, an interview with um, producer, um, writer, director Kenneth Johnson um, that um, my co-host Paul and I on Cheesecake vs. Spencer did a while back. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put that onto the end of this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, uh, I've got an interview coming up with Mark Singer, the actor who plays Mike Donovan on V, uh, coming up. But I'll um, won't probably. I'm not recording that until next weekend, um, so I don't think we'll have that in time to add to this. So uh, that I'll probably put that out as like a bonus episode or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, we will um, now hit pause. We will watch part two of V, and then we will come back for discussion and for that conversation with Kenneth Johnson. So we'll speak to you shortly. Here we go. Swear you'll listen to the good, the bad, and the odd. The good. He has the cruelty of Jack Nicholson's Joker, the wit of Mark Hamill's Joker, yeah. and the laugh of Cesar Romero. <laughs> the bad. He's bald, he's got a cat, he lives in a volcano. What else you need? And the odd. I've that seen bits great. of it, it's really stupid. Swear to me. Just a couple of guys talking about movies. You can find us on www.thegoodthebadandtheodd.com What a beautiful podcast. So we're back. So we've just finished watching part two of V from 1983, the uh, TV miniseries written and directed by Kenneth Johnson. Hannah, before we get into the um, inevitable beat-by-beat breakdown that we are known by... Dozens of people the world over <laughs> for. Um, what were your initial thoughts on part two of V? My very initial thought once we had concluded that episode is we're watching the final battle. Uh, this is like Babylon 5 season 5 all over I, again, isn't it? <laughs> like, there is just no fucking way in this world that I could not watch Okay, that. well, let's come back to that. Okay. What you watch tonight... Yeah. Although, in fairness, you can't necessarily separate those two mm. things out. But um, I think this is the probably the highest honour I could give it. About halfway through the episode, I stopped taking notes because I couldn't um, allow myself to not be looking at the screen. Oh, so you were engrossed. I just decided, <laughs> I decided I was getting so fucked off with taking notes that I was just going to watch it and enjoy it and wing it. You're like, oh, that meat bag that I married, he'll be, he'll, well, <laughs> he'll be covering it. I he'll always be... know you're going to take notes, but, but for something that I haven't watched before, I haven't watched a lot, I always find it helpful to take notes. Yeah, like what jumped out at you. jog my memory yeah. and stuff. Remember to talk about this yeah. point. But... I just wanted to be in it and feel the emotion of everyone fighting um, and the struggles they were going through that I just had to kind of abandon it. Well, also, it was... Just be in it. it, There was a lot of um, visual storytelling. Yeah. Um, It's a lot less... um, It's a lot more about uh, action, but also about what people's faces are saying. Yeah, 100%. and that's fiendishly difficult to take notes. Drawing. I mean, espionage 
is is what a lot of it is and yeah. it's really hard to like you say take notes through that because it's nuance isn't yeah it? yeah yeah um but safe to say i i fucking loved it and oh you liked it oh good yeah, yeah i really i yeah. mean come on yeah well, no, I, I wouldn't I, I thought if you liked the first part i wouldn't see why you wouldn't yeah, but like why this. would i say what i've just said and yeah, yeah. not like it um i don't know you're a complicated woman you're like a female no. john shaft in that respect <laughs> you're just an idiot I'm not just an idiot. I'm a fool as well, Hannah. (laughs) And a blackguard. Yeah, safe to say, loved it. Really thought it was so solid. Mm. Um, I can see how it became such a zeitgeist thing um, in 1983. I can imagine it now Mm. with social media. They would have been all over that shit. But we we didn't have a lot of of good shit in 1983. You know, it was... a lot of good shit or not a lot of good shit this is well above that yeah it's it's great shit yeah yeah um and also it's it's interesting viewing this as an example of the kind of the dead form of the miniseries we've got kind of an equivalent mm. they call them a limited series now mm. yeah. like obi-wan kenobi the star wars series that's designed to be a one and done right you know uh, so that's the modern equivalent but there was something really unique about 80s miniseries. There's something miniseries. pretty powerful about a two or three part well, it, film, it was the, basically. I think what it was, was this was... I mean, that's essentially a film that's been cut in two. There, there, was, there, was, there was so much, absolutely, there was so much stuff, zeitgeisty stuff, that there were so many individual chemicals that resulted in the miniseries, which is this thing where, and I, I, it was funny, I was chatting on Twitter to uh, Fozzie Bear today about other mm. stuff. And I've just suddenly thought, I would love to do a, a, a podcast series with Fozzie Bear that just covered 80s miniseries. Because <laughs> you could do like two or three episodes and you're done, move yeah. on to the next one. And they're all fascinating and interesting. And one of the things that a lot of them have got in common is that they are literary adaptations. V isn't, uh, although it was, in, it was influenced by it. But And I'll get into this in the kind of post-show stuff, because I want to get into a little bit of the behind-the-scenes stuff okay. that's kind of useful to know to contextualise this. Mm. Um but one of the things that is that um, Kenneth Johnson is a novelist as well. He's a prose writer, right. which is unusual for TV writers. Mark Frost is as well, but there's not a lot of them are. And um, the, a lot of really understanding V kind of has to be coloured by knowing that the person who created it is first and foremost a novelist. Mm. Because one of the things that the 80s miniseries had in common was that often they were adaptations of novels. So they had to be miniseries because you couldn't do an ongoing weekly dynasty-style series of them. No, um, there's a definite input. There's a, big, there's, there's, yeah. there's, there's, there's a source material. Yeah. But at the same time, you can't do them as a movie because even like, you know, Hollywood Wives and... Um, I've never seen Hollywood the, Wives. The, the, the other big one was The Thorn Birds. That was another big oh, one in God, the 80s. Oh, my mum loved um, that. Everybody loved that. People, and I've it, never seen it. But the thing about the I was miniseries too young when it came out. is, and it reminds me now, like you know, there's this big argument about like streaming services. Should you drop the entire season in one go, mm. or should you do it week by week? And one of the reasons why people say you shouldn't drop it all at once is that it, it enters and exits the cultural conversation really quickly. Mm. So I remember that uh, the one example I always remember, and again, Fuzzy Bear mentioned this. He's getting big play tonight. Um, was the uh, what's that? Uh, sorry. 
Kimmy Schmidt. Uh, Kimmy Schmidt, yeah. Yeah. How that... Everybody was like... Everybody was like... Yeah. And then everybody was, was talking about forgotten, like yeah. the week after. And that reminds me of the miniseries. And V, I remember it was... Um, it was water cooler to the level of Lost, uh, who shot JR, who killed Laura Palmer. And then it was gone. You and, know? And in fact, I would say, um, like, modern day build-up of that was between seasons four and five of Breaking Bad because that's when it went from AMC to Netflix. Yeah, yeah. And Everybody watched it. Well, this is the thing. Like, everybody watched the first four seasons because it was suddenly available on Netflix yeah. and then had to wait for season five to drop. And that's and, such a different experience, you know, watching that weekly. I don't know if you remember this, but our broadband went down in our flat for, like, four days or something. Mm. When, like, we were at the, I don't know, penultimate episode or the one before that. and Anti-penultimate. And it was just like, oh, my yeah, God, yeah, yeah. what are we going to do? We can't watch but, it. But the thing, the thing that's funny, though, with the, I mean, the, and the reason I bring this up, just to sort of, you know, dovetail back into the conversation about the episode, is that the the thing about the miniseries in the, in the 1970s, 80s, and early 90s, um, sense of that is that not only is it a form of storytelling that's kind of been lost but it's a form of consumption mm. that's been lost the way that and, and the other thing it reminds me of a little bit is the disaster movies of the 70s things like mm. the Poseidon Adventure and where yeah. they'd have these big casts they were like a term we use on Chinstroker versus Spencer they were a classic production and they were always sold you know like it was the closest thing to a movie yeah. you were going to get now now in this age of like Marvel dropping films day and date on Disney Plus that's lost a little bit but the idea of something as big budget and as well made and as kind of at least in 1983 context as sort of I guess kind of as intellectual as V mm. just being there to watch on TV mm. was insane and I mean this came out the same year for example as The Return of the Jedi Yeah, and you know the special effects in this look pretty much like that. Mm. So the idea that you could sit down at home and watch this, and then of course you've got the British experience, the experience I had of watching this, which was very different. Because, mm. um, let me ask you this: Did you have a? In fact, I kind of know the answer to this, but did you have a? They're not going to make it. Seinfeld oh, really? moment. Well, you know I didn't. Well, tell us, because we were watching this, but tell the audience what your thought... So I paused this, and I was like, how are they going to finish this? It's There's only five minutes to go. Um, it it really was like, I don't think they're going to make it. Yeah. I've, and, that, that's, and when you say don't think they'll make it, you mean repel the visitors from yeah, Earth and live yeah, happily ever after. Exactly. So were you, when you started watching this, was your... And this is a completely reasonable thing. Was your expectation... I was 100% expecting the arc to be terrible, 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 da-da-da-la, vanquished. Yeah. Well, it's oh. quite... There's, there's sort of a bit of that, but... Yeah, but the the bad guys aren't dead. Yeah. And, it's and in... that's a big thing. Yeah. That is why I am insisting on watching the final battle. Yeah. and we will return I'm to that. I'm hoping I get some closure. Uh, uh, we will return to that conversation. Uh, and there's a, there's a reason for me procrastinating on that. But the reason I bring it up is that that could be, that could be a valid criticism of this, is um, it has 
an ending, but it it's just, pretty does, open. Does it have closure? Yeah. You know, I mean, it doesn't a, have closure. No, no. Uh, but but, and it's funny because when this was made, there was no thought that there was going to be a follow-up. Mm. When Kenneth Johnson wrote this, um, he didn't have any reason to think, first of all, that it would actually get made. Mm. Second of all, that it would anybody would watch it, and third of all, that it would be successful enough to warrant a follow up. Yeah. So he was happy with this being it, mm. with these two episodes being it, and now I, I've I've seen the rest of the, um, so I can kind of look back initially and think, God, that's kind of ballsy, you know. Mm. And and there's two ways of looking at this. There's the one way is to take the Chris Carter JJ Abrams approach, which mm. is just that. He thought that if he left it on a cliffhanger, that was a good strategic thing to do um, from a producer because people would have to know what happened next and he'd get to make more. Yeah. That's one view. Yeah. Um, the other view, and I think that the truth is somewhere in between, is that this is clearly analogous to a number of things, but mainly World War Two. Yeah. And my feeling is that when he made this, he was like, well, you know, World War Two doesn't get wrapped up in two episodes. No. So the, the climax of this was people coming together and realising we have to resist. Mm. That was, I think, his happy ending. His, his sort so. of... Um, I mean, in some ways, looking, looking back at it now, it would actually be kind of ridiculous if they did beat the visitors. Because yeah. that's just oh, implausible. Absolutely. You know, but and, and like the most emotional points are, you know, the the letter that's left by the grandfather about, you know... If really you small character if, moments. If you don't do this, then we've learnt nothing and yeah. da 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 um, And I get that. Um, and it does... It plays so well with all of that. That's and, the victory. The victory and, is yeah. winning... The Bernstein mother over. Yeah. That's the and big I moment. Think, um, I mean, from from what I think, and I mean, you know, Kenny Kenny J, my best friend. Um, I know. As opposed to Kenny G. <laughs> yeah, no, is, Kenny, he, is, is he? Are they related? <laughs> Kenny, Kenny J. Uh, the Fresno Kennys or, or the San Diego Kennys? Jay, he's my boy. Um, you know, obviously I know everything that he's thinking about and I know totally what was behind his every thought and... Well, you need to listen to the interview at the end of this episode and oh. maybe I'll tell you. Hey, Kenny. <laughs> um, I, I think that his, like, quote marks, happy ending was hope. Like, that's what that's what he's given yeah. his characters by the end is hope in each other, hope in a future that that can contain happiness and... People doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, and working together and finding their new normal. It feels and, like a, lo- a love letter to belief in human nature in some ways. But even, even like in COVID times now, um, that kind of belief in the good in people yeah. is something that... Because you have so many, oh, this is a conspiracy and that's a conspiracy and this person wants the worst yeah. of that. And, that. and there's always going to be people who like of that. Of course, there's always know. going to be people like that. But um, I can see how attractive it is to have something that is about 
humanity coming together and and same in Watchmen. Well, like, what are these? There is know, finding that alien element to to unite humanity yes, yeah. against a common enemy yeah, and, rather than fighting themselves. And there is historical precedent for this because if you, it's easy to be cynical and go, oh, people are shit. But if you look at World War II, there are a multitude of powerful stories of people doing the right thing. Yeah. And all of these things combined to evil being vanquished, ultimately. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just think that that the story that if you look at this, if you just imagine that this was actually a World War Two story, mm. like like when you watch Saving Private Ryan, there's no expectation that Tom Hanks is going to end the war. No, you know, and I think that you can kind of there's a, a little I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate here, but I think that there's a bit of that here is the fact that I think that Kenneth Johnson's view was, well, you know. This is the story I wanted to tell. You know, there is room for doing more. And he understands the form of television. He'd been a TV producer for years. I mean, he'd done... Um, he produced The Bionic Woman, which was one of the first ever spin-offs of a TV mm. show. So he under- he was like ground zero and understanding a very early a- adopter of the idea of the shared universe yeah. and of franchises. And, you know, th- that wasn't even a term. Back then, in when people talked about franchises in the seventies, they were talking about restaurants, mm. you know. But I think that so I think part of him was was had you know the, the sort of the, the nang soon enough to think well okay maybe this could be successful. But I think as a storyteller, he understood that um, it would go against the integrity of the story if they beat the visitors. So the victory has to be something smaller and more ethereal. Okay, then well, should we work through the I guess the main story points is sort of the spine of the episode. Yeah. And uh, you just stop me if there's anything that um, you want to jump in. <laughs> Somebody stop me. <laughs> um, so um, we open up with... I also want to mention on the opening credits, and they use this on the other versions of the as well. From a... Um, what's the word I'm even looking for? From a really basic genre aesthetic perspective... I just think that the it's really powerful, the black background with the red V. Yeah. Just that's a fucking good look for a show. And I remember that was one of the things when I watched this as a, you know, a nine, nine or ten year old that really struck you were 10 with me. Because I was four. Um, well, no, it, it, this, I watched it, it came in the UK in 84 and I was born in 73. So it depends. And it was June, so it was just before. June 84. Yeah. Was when it was on in the UK. Then I was five. Okay, so um, you were nearly. I was eleven. I was. I was ten. I was. Yeah, I was nearly eleven, mm. and uh, that that made an impression on me as well. Just that that spray canned V with the black background. And I remember when it was the show was being marketed. It was like, what does V even mean? Like, and even now people argue about it. You've got the V for victory, but also V for visitors as well. Mm. And, and V for vengeance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, of v course, V for vendetta. Yeah, yeah, kind of <laughs> yeah. Copyrighted. V for veganism. I don't know, <laughs> but um, the but but that's just a, it's just striking image. And I think one of the reasons why the show lingers on because I, I kind of I, I play this as a bit of an underdog show. You know, this sort of um, it was really big and then it went away and only us like you know super secret handshake geeks know about it. Super cool news. But dinosaur dudes. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's uh, the lizard, the, the, the iguana dudes. <laughs> um, 
and it's not. I mean, it's a well-known thing, but it's just the fact that, and it, and it's lingered um, in the cultural consciousness enough that there's been numerous attempts to reboot it. You know, um, I mean, the TV series from 2010 or whatever. I mean, that was a huge budget thing, and but they just didn't get it right. And I think part of that is that it's it, a lot to do with the actors that they use. I mean, whoever casted it did a fucking great job. Yeah, and, and it wasn't. I mean, nobody in it really was. Um, that Super well, well that well known. No, but they uh, they were all excellent, and they were actors. all well because I mean, if you look at like Mark Singer who plays Mike Donovan, he's a very kind of like you know cheesy action hero kind of guy. Mm. But that's you need that shorthand. You need yeah. the audience to understand. Oh, okay, he's he's the guy who'll jump in the jeep he's and get shit done. Man. You know. Yeah. But I I think I rewatching it now. For me, the three standout performances are. I think Faye Grant as Julie is brilliant. Mm. I think she's got such strength. Yeah. Um, and she's not like a bimbo-y character or she's not no, sexualised in any way. You no, know? she's not sexualised uh, and she doesn't try to come on to anybody. There's no romantic no, stuff. It's just... No, she's it's just I mean, apart from the guy in the in the first episode who she basically fucks off because she's just like realises he's a piece of shit. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah. Um, I but think, that's not romantic. I, I think that yeah. the um, the guy who plays Robert is really good. Which one's uh, um, um, the the dad, the scientist dad? Oh yes, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I, I think of the the um, the um, the actor who plays Elias is really really strong as well. Which one's Elias? He's the younger brother, the African American guy who oh, yes, his brother he got is killed. Um, but I think that it, <coughs> excuse me, everybody is well cast. And, and the thing is that we talked about this a bit in the first episode is just the size of the cast. Yeah, and. You know, we. You know, I mean, that's why I'm so bad with names because I've so many of them. Yeah. But, but, the, but and, and that's a miniseries thing because there's something about the relationship between the content on screen in V and the way that the audience consumed it that I think is really interesting. And I haven't quite figured out. And I, and I'm I'm really annoyed that um, I approached Kenneth Johnson to interview him again for this, mm. and he wants to do it, but he wants to wait until November because he's got uh, a book. He's got a book coming, a novel coming right, out, yeah. and he's like, "I'll talk about thee as long as I can, you know, well, talk maybe, about my novel as well." Maybe we should save the final battle for November. Um, well, we shouldn't, so I'll explain why in a moment because okay. he's got a real problem with that with oh, those, right. those things. Um, but um, because I'd be really curious to to know, um, but what his thoughts were on this. Uh, and maybe I actually asked him that in the last interview and I've just completely forgotten it was like a decade ago um, but is there something about um, how many characters there are and you know, in the first part you've got all of, a lot of the characters are introduced to us through them watching things on television mm-hmm. and having that communal experience like the moon landing you know everybody was bound together by watching this on TV yeah. 9-11 you know was the same oh, you know, we, yeah. all, we all watched it you know we watched yeah, it happen or listened to it on the radio or whatever and but but uh, but the experience of watching uh, event television, like a yeah. miniseries like V, is really similar. So there's there's that kind of thing. Very but much um, so, I mean, you know, even it, like you, it, it doesn't even have to be a miniseries thing. But like, if like if, I, I feel like everyone in New Zealand watched when Ross and Rachel got together and friends, yeah, and when uh, Seinfeld finished and. Like that far more. Jason Donovan and Kylie's wedding in Neighbours. Oh my you know? god! Like yeah. And the thing is that that is starting to come round again. Mm. It's weird how that stopped being a thing because we'd all watched what we wanted on Netflix, but now 
we started seeing a return to, you know, Disney Plus that they that they they took a lot of shit with the Mandalorian where they said no we're going to put these on one a week. Mm. So what you see is on Friday night around the world, everybody's talking about that week's episode yeah. of the Star Wars show, yeah. or Thursday night everybody's talking about that week's episode of Star Trek, mm. and it's like. Um, it's a classic for a reason. There's a reason why that worked because yeah. there's a reason why people sat around campfires. There's a reason why people painted on caves. You know, the the the, the cultural. It's that connection. It's connection. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, I'll just pick out a few key points here. So we we open up with Mike Donovan um, going to look for his son and his wife, his ex-wife. Uh, mainly his son, though. Let's be honest. And <laughs> it's basically everywhere's decimated. Yeah. And he finds Josh, uh, who was the friend of his sons that we saw playing with the, the visitor action figures yeah. in the first episode. Um, and we see um, that they basically took his wife and kid. Yeah. Um, because what basically happened, what we're starting to see is um, civil unrest. Yeah. You know, is people uh, who don't realise quite how dangerous the visitors are, but realise they don't want them there. Yeah. Um, and they're kind of like trying to go for it, but they. Uh, volatile and um they're coming from a super over emotional place rather than thinking tactically yeah it's a bunch of drunk bros in a pickup truck kind of like going we don't like you yeah 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 yeah. exactly uh, and they probably wouldn't have done it if they'd have known what mike knows because the thing we have to remember is that at this point donovan is still the only person even um julie and robert and elias they just know Mm -hmm. That the that scientists are being ostracised. Yeah, uh, Mike's still the only person because his tape never ran. Mm. Who knows that they're you know fucking murder <laughs> murder lizards. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, murder lizards. The original uh, abandoned name for this uh, rejected name. <laughs> yeah, murder lizards. <laughs> you galah, what? <laughs> you dingus. So we see that they took his uh, ex-wife and kid. Um, he recovers his son's cap. Um, but they took everyone, and um, you, he, I'll tell you what: him putting that cap on in the in the plane in the you know shuttle shuttle later on, it was like, yeah, I just need a bit of luck, and I'm going to perch this fucking tiny hat on my head, and that's going to do it. <laughs> well, it's it's like the uh, it's like um, when Adrian shouts out to Rocky, you know, it's you can do it, you know, it's one of those kind of, yeah. Um, so. We we he mentions the key that he left, um, yes. yeah. and uh, you know I know Eagle Eyed Hannah spotted that in the first episode. She was like, "Oh, he should have kept that." And yeah. I was like, "Ah, oh, yeah, I have to wait and see." Um, and actually, speaking of eagle eyed things, and um, this might be absolutely nothing, but like uh, like what war is good for. <laughs> <laughs> to paraphrase Edmund oh, Starr, very good. The present that is given to. Mike Donovan's mother, the diamond. Oh, yeah. And the Hitler Youth. Oh, Daniel. He's got the diamond in the ring. Yeah. I thought that there was going to be some kind of, I don't know, activate the diamond to do mind control on them. Maybe there is. Well, this is why I need to watch the fucking rest of it. Because I feel like. Season five, Babylon five, me again, Mike. I just, I, I sort of feel like they're too. Bigger coincidences for there to be nothing. Yeah. I, I think within the, within the context, I mean, we have to view these two things 
these two episodes as their own thing. Because yeah, that's the way for, that they were presented to the world. nothing to come of it was no, bizarre. I, I mean, my, my feeling is that when um, Kenneth Johnson wrote and shot this, they were just meant to be representations of um, temptation. You know? Yeah, I, but I, I, as, as a woman, I'd be looking at that one diamond going, well, where's the fuck another one? What am I going to do? Wear one earring? <laughs> it's, it's, I think there's Who a symbolic... I, boy George? <laughs> there's, 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 there's a symbolic value to that. But um, the... And again, I've, I've, sorry, I was going to mention this earlier on, but I kind of derailed myself, is that when this was on in the UK, it's really important to remember, is that the it aired a year later, and by a year later... V, the final battle had been made, which mm. was the three-part miniseries, which was designed to be a, a conclusion to yeah. this storyline. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that. Um, well, even I know that. Yeah, and, 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 and I've not seen and it. And, and it, it, it is. It, mm. it is a conclusion. Yeah. Um, but I think the title gives. But when um, this was well, yeah. But then again, Friday the Thirteenth Part Four is called the final chapter, and there's twelve films, <laughs> so it's never a given thing. Yeah, but that's horror. Yeah, it's different. Um, but the so, when, but by the time this was aired in the UK, it was aired over five nights, and they showed all five parts. Mm. But they didn't differentiate it. It wasn't like on Monday and Tuesday we've got V, and then on we didn't have that level of pop cultural savviness. It was just. Oh, v, v. v is a five-part miniseries that was hot shit in America last year and it's now on TV here because we don't want you to watch the Olympics on the BBC. Yeah. You know, that was basically it. So I never differentiated between it. And I remember watching, um, as I say, V in a really weird way because of how late I was allowed to stay up. And I, and I, I essentially watched all five parts and was like, okay, that's V, that's great. And then... It was repeated on TV about a year later. And, of course, then I was like, all right, V, I'm fucking ready for you. I'm at home. I'm not off in Torquay. I've got my VCR. And I recorded the whole thing. And I remember being really confused. I was watching it. And I was like, why have, like, the third, fourth, and fifth episode got different, like, opening credits? Mm. And they've got a different title? Like, what the fuck? And there was no internet. There was no, that was just a question I had to deal with for, like, ten years. And then, finally, the internet got invented. And I was like, fucking hell, internet. <laughs> finally, you know, I've been waiting going, for it. What the fuck, yeah. man? Yeah. I can now no finally answers. find out what uh, it was. It was a Seinfeld thing. It was like you know, what's the deal with V? <laughs> you know, and <laughs> fucking it being having different names and shit. Was that supposed to be a Seinfeld impression? What do you mean supposed to be? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I wish this was a video podcast it was, because it was, it was maybe the, slightly exaggerated. The physicality that went with that particular sentence was. <laughs> Quite yeah. amazing, but, th- but again, th- but that's the thing. So I, and then they they came out on video uh, many years later, and I bought them, and I could see. Then I had like the cases, and you've got who wrote them and all that, and I started to put it together, and I was like, oh wow, okay. So one of these was actually made a year. The first two episodes were made a year before, and I started piecing it all together. Did Kenneth Johnson do the final battle. Well, I, I suppose this is a good time to sort of cover this off, but basically, he 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 made the first two parts of the, and he he, he yeah. put them out. And they and they were tremendously successful. So Warner came back to him. We're like, we'd like to do more. And he basically said, "My understanding of this is that he said, great. What what I think we should do is like every couple of years, I think we should do another two, like another two part miniseries, and we can jump around in time." And his idea was that they could maybe do the second miniseries could be the same period of time as the first one, but maybe in France 
or okay. yeah. um, in a different part of America or something. Yeah. Um, and you've got the setup at the end of the first one where it's, um, you know, maybe in a few years, the, the other aliens will fight. He said, maybe we could do one and set a few years later and the other alien mm-hmm. race comes down. And the idea being, but it's this kind of, it's almost like... It's like an uh, epic. Well, they're, they're like period movies based mm. on this imaginary giant bit like, science... A bit like Fargo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. But um, and, and, and and the studio were like, well, we want one next year. And he was like, well, I don't see how we can do that with any level of quality. Mm. I mean, V was made really quickly. And he was like, I don't think we can do this. And they were like, well... So basically, he, he went away and he wrote uh, the next part of the... Yeah. And it wasn't the final... It, it wasn't meant... It was basically what ended up being made as the final battle. Mm-hmm. So um, he came back and was like, this is what I'd like to do. And they were like, okay, um, but we want this to be the end. He was like, you know, because they were like, we can't milk this too much. And he was like, well, I want this to be an ongoing thing. And they had all these arguments about, should this be just another entry in it or should this be the final one? He didn't want to have too much closure for it because mm. he liked this idea that it was like World War Two, that it was this thing, yeah. that it was this big period of history and you could just do tell all these different stories from it. Yeah. And they were like, no, this was really successful. We want to do another one next year. We want to sell it as the final battle. And they had all these arguments. And basically, he either quit or was fired, depending on who you talk to. Okay. But what Warner Brothers did was they took his script, they took his storyline. So um, he didn't direct any. Mm. He wasn't actively involved in V, the final battle at all. Okay. But... When you look at the credits, it's story by Kenneth Johnson because they basically took his story and made it. Right. So it is still the V the final battle is still Kenneth Johnson's vision. Mm. It's the story he wanted to tell. It's the same cast. Mm. Um, it largely looks and feels the same, um, but it was different directors. Each of the three parts is filmed by a different director, and other people came in, and it feels like some of the sillier moments in part two like the shuttle battle and stuff like that, that sort of stuff is dialled up more. I don't think that's... Well, no, no, but it's more, it's much more um, action-adventure with a little bit of social commentary, Mm. whereas the original miniseries is social commentary with a little bit of Mm. action-adventure. But it's not that different. But Kenneth Johnson basically, to this day, and he says this on the interview that you hear at the end, has not watched a minute of the final battle. He said, he, he, he said, it's like, he said it'd be like watching somebody else going on a date with his ex-wife. Right. You know, it's just, it would just be too strange. Um, but it is the story he wanted to tell. Yeah. You know, uh, and it makes sense. Um, and it has closure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and then what happened after the final battle was the final battle was really successful. And it's almost as though Kenneth Johnson was like, I fucking told you guys, you know, you, you were well, killing. I'm happy to watch his ex-wife like somebody so, so what they did then was they did a weekly TV show. Now, that is unwatchable. It's just this silly thing. It's got really nothing to do with the, the original one. Yeah. And then and then they just sort of stuck around in the cultural um, consciousness. And then what Kenneth Johnson did, and this is when we had him on our podcast, was he basically just said, fuck it, you know, I love thee. Mm. I want to finish his storyline. So he wanted to make a film um, that was going to be a direct sequel to the original four hours to what right. we just watched yeah. that was going to ignore the final battle of yeah. the TV series and everything and that was going to be his sequel to the original V yeah. he was struggling to get funding for it so he wrote a novel and he's released it I've read it you know, he's, so basically the official Kenneth Johnson sequel to this original four hours is a novel mm-hmm. that he put out called V the Second Generation and that's about 
the other alien race receiving the signal and coming back. Coming back. Um, so it's an alternative follow-up to that. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, the final battle, it's not as good as the original one because it's longer and it feels less focused. But there's a lot of good shit in there, yeah. you know. Uh, and it's the same cast, and you get you get an ending. So th- 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 that's what it is. But anyway, I'm going to get back to the uh, the uh, yeah. tale of the tape. Um, we see Daniel having dinner with his parents, and he tells them that he's engaged. Yeah. Um, and um, he basically tells them that it's to Robin, and uh, he doesn't care whether she wants to or not because he will have her, and it's his choice. And he can just take what he wants. Yeah, he can take what he wants. And that's when the grandfather throws a drink in his face. And everything just goes to shit. <laughs> At this he point, tries basically. to pull the girl out of the pool house. Yeah, his father throws him in the pool. He nearly shoots his father. Yeah, I mean he doesn't. Um, he just no, show- but only because his mother yeah. screams like to snap. She him basically out of- jumps in front of him. Well, she snaps him out of what he's in. Yeah, like, sort of ego and like fucking hell, you're about to shoot your father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Uh, but you can tell that things aren't uh, are going badly now, mm. um, and we, um, we see Caleb um, really nice performance actually, where you see him kick off at Willie, the Robert England character at the funeral yeah. of his son. You know, yeah. um, we that see was, that was really good. I, I don't want to say lovely because it's you know. No, I, I think you can, and I understand what you mean. Yeah. You know, it, it just. In some ways, it seems over the top, but it also seems extremely true to life. Yeah, it's ugly. It's of ugly. A father who is losing a child. Yeah. And what you start to see as well is Elias um, stepping up. Yeah. Oh, very like, I like the way that Elias interacts Stops with him Elias. From like, yeah, fighting. like he, he pushes Willie away, but yeah. not in an aggressive way, but no. just in a dude, you don't want to be here, you know? Yeah. And you, you can already see. The character growth that Elias has had after his little meltdown at the end of yeah. of the last episode, yeah. and um, so we see that the um, the Maxwells are getting uh, snuck out. Uh, the, the gardener Sancho, um, who we saw in the last episode, um, I like the fact that he says, "Look, I've had experience of this." So what we're seeing, oh, you missed is, the whole Shalom motherfucker. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. When they when they break into the house and. Yeah. Uh, uh, I love that he turns around and shut up. Yeah, yeah. And he's listening to his records as well, you know, and he's got his pictures of his wife up. And um, so we see the gardener Sancho sort of sneak yeah. them out. And, and I think it's nice because he mentions that he's got experience of this. So what we're seeing is people who have suffered yeah. the, the earthly version of this, who have had to hop Trump's fence, you know. Yeah. Um, Hide people that they love yeah in ways to smuggle them to and they're paying they're, and they're doing it for other people they're doing it for white americans yeah. you know white middle class americans as well you know and people that's the who thing would have been the enemy that's why i hate it when you get any modern radicalization whether it's racist psychopath fucking nra douchebags or overly woke cancel randy liberals it's always like guys it could be you next yeah. you know just remember this when you're witch hunting mm. you could be the fucking next one you know yeah. and you're gonna have to rely on the charity of the people that you fucked mm. to save you and what we this see here thing about, uh, you know such a simple thing that people just can't get their head around but you have to be kind always yeah. even to people you fucking don't like and even if you're just going to do that out of self-interest mm. fine yeah <laughs> you know um so 
we see Donovan's mom um, shopping them in when she hears um, the the girls in the back of the truck. Um, I like the fact. I loved. I love both the moments with the nice cop because you see him here yeah. when he hears it, and he's like, "Nothing's going on," and he just looks. No, nothing else. Just looks at Sancho, and I also love that it's the same cop later. When Ruby throws that Molotov cocktail in. Yes. And he just, just chuckles. Laughs. And it's yeah. the only two times that you see this guy in the whole thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's just got these two really memorable, nicely played moments. Um, so. And this is where my notes end. So. Okay. But I also love the fact that the. Um, I want to talk about the music in this because I like the fact that all of the characters, well, many of the characters have their own individual things. I, I hadn't. Realised what well, I hadn't noticed this at all mm. until you mentioned it when we were watching it. But the resistance have a theme. It's that da 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 da, da that that little motif, and I never noticed. But the first time you hear that, and it's a really quiet piano version of it, is the moment when that copper lets them through. Right, and it's almost a signal. It's okay. The there are good people, you know, yeah. and the resistance isn't necessarily a large group of people with machine guns. The resistance can be just somebody turning a blind eye for just a moment. Mm. Um, and sometimes that's a huge, her- hugely heroic act and can result in like these really yeah. positive, you know, things. Yeah. And, um, and so we see, um, it's, it's these small acts, of, small acts of kindness. Um, I also like the fact that when you see Julie and Elias and all of the other, um, sort of formative uh, resistance people trying to find a new base because they're coming down from the hills and they found this kind of like underground, abandoned place. It's kind of like a um, stone hellscape that they're going to stay in. And I love how kind of humble and eager to please Elias is. Yeah. He's like, I hope it's okay. And, like, oh. yeah. and you can see just how sort of almost, considering it's, she's only like, because I mean, I always think of, like the characters in this has been grown ups. Yeah. Because I watched this as a kid. But Julie, and they actually played it, she's like in her early twenties. Mm. You know, and But I, I But she's like being maternal to him, she's like a proud mother. I found that weird in the opposite way where Mike's always calling her kid. Because to me they look very similar ages. They're both grown ups. But that was because it was the eighties and it was impossible to tell how old people yeah. were. And like but I mean, because I mean um Mark Singer would have been probably nearly 15 years older than her. Right. But you. But they don't look 15 years apart. <coughs> it's hard to tell, you yeah. know, because everybody dressed like... You are either a child mm. or a grown-up. Yeah. It's, it's as though there was a point you got to about 15 and there would be like a... You'd be handed your grown-up clothes and be like, yeah. there you go, go out into the world and, and be a grown-up. Get your perm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This was a point I made a note about... And I, and I mention this because of obviously the nature of our podcast, the Rewatch Project. One thing about V, and I was reminded this because Dean was watching it over the weekend, mm. is V is extremely rewatchable. Uh, but not rewatchable in the way that things like Twin Peaks and Babylon 5 are, mm. where they're rewatchable because you're catching the early references, the early signs that things are happening. Yeah. But just rewatchable because of just how entertaining the performances are right. and just how um, fun it is and how eighties it is and just all of these things that make it an enjoyable experience to watch. Make it an enjoyable experience to rewatch. So you're rewatching it not because you want to get something new from it, mm. but just because you want to fucking watch it again. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and it was funny because I was talking to Jane, my, my 
friend James back in the UK about this today because he's he's not been that into a lot of the new Star Trek. We have been, but he's right. been quite sort of like, you know, he likes it, but he's quite like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, but he loves Strange New Worlds. Mm. And we were talking about it. And one of the things I said to him was, I was like, I love all the new Star Trek. I was like, but I've got to say, the one thing about Strange New Worlds is it's the first Star Trek series since Enterprise where I think I would actually be likely to rewatch episodes. Yeah, 100%. Where I'd actually agree. like to go back and rewatch them. Because, yeah. And a large part of that is because they're self-contained. But just because there's a, there's a, a basic entertainment level yeah. that encourages wanting to watch it again. Oh, my God. The last episode was pure... It was a rom-com, wasn't it, basically? but It, 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 it was a pure one-off episode. Like it, yep. it had a beginning, middle, and end. Well, they all have. Had, all five have. Yeah, but it, it had the comedy sidescape. It had everything. It had the big plot. On. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 there's something about that that's rewatchable. Whereas, like, um, you know, a lot of more art based shows do. And, and V kind of falls into that. Is the fact that I rewatch V, and and you know, new things about it reveal themselves. And you, uh, but it's but I but my enjoyment from rewatching it. Is just the experience of rewatching it, you know, yeah. just the fact that it's, a, it's an entertaining thing. But um, so we. And that's okay. You don't have to get something new from something every time you watch it. Yeah. Like, there are loads of things that I watch just because I fucking enjoy the exact same things yeah. I enjoyed the it's first just time good. around. It's just, <laughs> it's good. just good. Yeah. You know, it's that simple sometimes. Um, so we see Daniel freaking out when. He comes home and his parents aren't there. Because the thing you, you get is that he was, like, shopping in... I don't think he realised how serious shit is. You know, like, he no. he figured that... Um, he's drinking the Kool-Aid, so he just figured that his parents um, would probably get a bit of a slap on the wrist. Yeah. And that... Um, you know they'd be, be re- yeah. but they'd be taken. You know, and I love the editing in this scene as well. It's really weird for the eighties. The fact that it's, it's cutting really quickly when he's walking around on the phone mm. and he's kind of freaking out and stuff. And um, you know, it's a really un- unusual technique for the uh, for the time. And we see Stephen and um, Donovan's mum, and that's when she, he gives her the diamond ring. And we're seeing this kind of like you know seduction. Um, and uh, we see Mike trying to find the resistance. Um, and um, we see Brian go to Daniel and basically kind of, he gifts, gifts him as well, um, you know, and basically to sort of talk him down. And he, and he, he feeds him a line of bullshit. And we believe what we want to believe because it's convenient. And all this kind of yeah. Thing. And yeah. he says, you know, oh, your, your granddad's ill. Mm. And you get the feeling that Daniel doesn't believe it, but it's just, it's so much more, his life is so much more convenient if he does. So he chooses and to believe it. He's also it. power hungry. The fact. That he offers him the second in command. He's like, "Oh, I'm just going to forget all this dodgy shit yeah. that has been worrying me, and like properly go for it." And his humanity yeah. is starting to go, and and he reminds you of like you know the conversations that um, the grandfather and the father had in the first episode about Daniel, even before the visitors arrived, mm. about how he didn't have any friends and how he was doing badly at school and how you know he he was just look he, he was. He was looking for something. Yeah. You know, and yeah. um, unfortunately, the, the wrong thing came along, you know. Whereas, like, yeah. maybe if he'd have found sport mm. or music or something, um, but this or was there. Connection. Yeah. This is what we go back to. And and, and that's what radicalisation feeds on, you know, yeah. is, is that. isolation. So we see them loading um, people onto the shuttle. 
um, and as Mike and his friend go and try and uh, infiltrate. And one weird... They're basically calling back to the start of part one where they're like kamikaze journalists yes. like, getting in there. And... It's, it's funny how much information you're given about them in that opening sequence. Yeah. And of course we get, you know, a call back to that sequence later in the episode as well. You know, like the the, the big battle at the camp is... Um, oh, is the it's, same thing. It's, it's yeah. the El Salvador yeah. sequence all over again. So what we're seeing is that this is it's happened before it'll happen again it'll yeah. always happen there'll always be resistance fighters it doesn't matter who or, it is the, yeah. the same things will happen you know the, the man will change yeah. you know yeah. um, but the tactics will always will always continue and it's worth mentioning just from a behind the scenes perspective that um, this was obviously pre-CG and every single time uh, you see a laser beam mm. that cost $1,000 wow so they were having to be really careful about how many that they used and that was one of the reasons why when you see the resistance steal guns from the mm. visitors, they're all human machine guns that have mm. been taken away because they knew that they were going to have the resistance using loads of things. And they were like, well, fuck, we'd be like, we'd, we'd, we'd be in the millions Big if we crap. were to do this. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, now that wouldn't be a consideration no. at all. But it's just the fact that like every time you see in the original V miniseries a laser beam going off, somebody had to sign a fucking check <laughs> just to, to get that done. And it's, just, it's a kind of... It's, I it's, mean... It's a different world. I like. I have no idea what goes into creating that laser beam, but I I'm an art worker who works in graphic design, and I know how much things used to cost when it was all negative films and plates and um. It's the same principle, I guess, isn't it? Stuff and now everything's digital. Yeah. Um, yeah, very, very different. Yeah. Um, so we see, um, well, Tony gets like venom in the face yeah. from one of them. Might get shot. I mean, that's the beginning of the end for him. Yeah. Um, the Maxwells uh, join Julie in the new resistance base. Uh, and we see that Julie's basically doing everything. This is great kind of Scorsese and long take as she walks around the base. Yeah. And everybody's like, Where, where's this go, Julie? How do yeah. I fix this? And she's just like... Not without even thinking about it, she's just like instinctively kind of going like this. And one of the things that I like about the character of Juliet Parrish is she's one of those great default leader characters. Yeah. She's got no ambition to do no. that. She's got nothing in her life before that that would indicate that she had those skills. But there are some people who are just natural leaders who, just if you just see put her as the leader, yeah, and yeah. if you just put them in a situation, they instinctively do that. And it yeah. isn't ego driven. It's not about power. It's not about control. It's just that it's there are so certain no people... no one else is going to step up and yeah. do it. Yeah. And it's not that the, the other people around her aren't skilled. It's just that she's got that kind of complete um, package, you know? Mm. Um, and it's funny because when we see her in the first episode, she's an intern. You yeah. know, she's, she's a kind of, um, you know, like a, a helping out in the lab and all mm. that kind of stuff. So we see how yeah. far she's come. So we see um, Ruby and Julie talking about responsibility. Like she's she's trying to fix the plumbing Ruby's and it breaks. The older yeah, lady. yeah. And she's and, and Juliet just confines in her. Look, um, I'm faking it till I make it. You know, here yeah. big time. And Ruby's just like, look, leaders don't ask to be leaders; they just mm. naturally become them. Mm. Um, and everybody's looking to you. Uh, and if in doubt, fake it. You know, mm. just do what you can. Yeah, no one will um, know. And, you know, it's kind of what she needs to hear in that moment. Uh, we see Diana sees Donovan. She goes to see Donovan. We see um, um, Mr. Bernstein is brought in and put in the chair. And it's one of the things where the door opens and you see this chair. And you see Mr. Bernstein look like, 
That doesn't look a very terribly comfortable chair. <laughs> I don't want to sit yeah. in that chair. That looks like a bad chair. <laughs> I don't want to... that's, that's not a lazy boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not even a dick chair. <laughs> um, no, no, no. On the take, spectrum take of chairs. Back to my dining chair. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. On the spectrum of chairs where you've got like I don't know. I'll eat the dry beef. <laughs> Just don't make me sit on that chair. Yeah. We see um Diana talk and they keep, she keeps talking about this conversion process yep. and the implication of course is that this is what they were doing to the scientists that we saw was, shopping in all of the other scientists in. yeah I was I think when they were talking about conversion process I was expecting to like um, the Hitler youth's parents I was expecting them to come back like hello son yeah. isn't this a wonderful life yeah. that we lead you know, like he like, made this for Mars, like they have a little yeah, mark on the back of their neck. Yeah, like absolutely lobotomized and and totally up for the alien race and yeah. I mean, that, I mean that, that is kind of what it is, but it's funny as well because when but you, they're not like they're no, no, they're not because you get this tortured. Yeah, but that that, you, that is actually explained though because you get the scene where Martin, the resist, the blonde-haired resistance yeah. guy, is talking to Donovan, and Donovan's like, "Well, why doesn't she just convert them?" And he's like, well, that's really time-consuming. Sometimes she just wants really quick information. Mm. And also, she gets off on it, you know. So what you're starting to see, and you see a little bit of this. She's basically Joseph Fritzl. Well, she is. But you also get the feeling with Diana that there's there's a sexual element to it as well. Oh, very much so. Like, you get the feeling that she's... Um, like probably pansexual like you see her there's a sexual moment between her and Christine the reporter mm. that was Mike Donovan's um, ex um, and, and then you got her with the like the young dude yeah I mean, and also I mean I guess if you look at this literally they're lizards anyway so to try and Doesn't attach really heterosexuality no, yeah. is kind of meaningless you know it's um, all a bloody free for all in there yeah yeah exactly and um so, but she talks about the challenge of converting him, and um, you know this is where um, Ch- uh, Martin kind of tricks her because basically she's about to send Donovan to basically be killed, mm. and Martin, obviously unknown to us at this point, he's part of the fifth column. He's mm. part of the resist the alien resistance. So I think he was at this point though because. You know, like, why would you be trying to goad her into keeping him? Oh, that's exactly it. He's he's procrastinating because he, 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 she wants him to go down the death side of the corridor, whereas Martin wants him to go down to the being locked up until she tries to convert him. Yeah, and she's like, oh, like, and he appeals to her ego, like, oh well, like I, I understand. It, you know, you oh, my young friend, <laughs> you, you don't think that you can do it, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. you know, we all have to be beaten by someone, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just trick yeah. in the book, yeah. Uh, and I like the fact as well that when, and I think this is the only time she's in this episode actually, is he sees Christine mm. just sat down chatting and she looks up at him and the door closes. Uh, it's not the only scene because then she has that hand thing. Oh, she yeah. has the moment with Diana yeah, yeah, as well, yeah, yeah. doesn't she? Yeah, yeah, but, you're right. But she doesn't speak at all. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and this is a funny thing as well because I've watched V in its entirety a lot of the times, but there's a lot of stuff from the final battle that I thought was in this. Right. Like Christine, like her character is really quite heavily featured in the final right. battle. And I thought all of that stuff was in this, but it's not. It's a bit um, like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. when I thought lots of stuff happened earlier yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so we see that it's too late for, for Tony. Um, he's basically being just like cut apart. Um, and um, I like the fact that they don't show him 
because it makes it so much yeah. worse. And I like the fact as well that they don't try and make Donovan too noble because he sees it and he's like, he's like, who did this? And he's like, Diana. And he's like, I want to kill her. Mm. And it's not the way that like Martin's like, yeah, you're gonna have to fucking get in line for yeah. that, mate. Like you know. But I think if they'd shown him, it would have made a mockery of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. By not showing him. Your mind goes into overdrive about what terrible things well, she's the, done to him. The scene is about what it does to Donovan's character, mm. and that's why it's on him. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, and there's probably a you know a 1983 network TV censorship element at work there as well. Oh, there's a bit um, of don't show the shark. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a yeah. good way of putting it, actually. And um, so um, we get a little bit more of Robin, fucking uh, Robin, uh, wandering out into the daylight. Um, we meet Barbara, who saves um, Barbara. Um, Donovan, and she asks him to shoot her in order to make the escape look convincing. The only reason I say Barbara is because our children have, um, at, at their school, there is a cat who comes into all of their classrooms who's a neighbourhood cat whose name is Barbara, and neither of our children can say Barbara. They say Barbara. Yeah, so we hear that. Um, and and we, ironically, Barbara is wearing a bra in the scene as well. So she's Barbara. <laughs> and yeah. they love Barbara. Yeah, it makes sense. And um, I like the uh, the scene where we see Elias and some of his toughs. And they're the most 1983 street gang ever. You've got the kind of, they're mixed race for starters. Yeah. Which street gangs never are. Let's be honest about this. And we stick they with our own when it comes to... clicking their fingers yeah, yeah, they went down the road. Yeah, one of them's got a bandana, you know. <laughs> They're all huddled together in that kind of, you know, Amdram way when that the street gangs were in, like, the... <laughs> yeah. and, um, and they steal a visitor. But basically what we learn is that it's actually, uh, it's actually Mike Donovan. And they take him back to the... Um, the resistance base. I love the fact that they've got the MASH logo in their yeah. medical bay as well. Yeah, That's I a nice that. little... Uh, you didn't see references to other TV shows in 80s TV shows very often. Um, I like, also like the fact that Julie walks with a cane. Mm. Like the, the toll of um, her getting shot is not forgotten. That's just yeah. part of her character now, is that yeah, she's, she's crippled, not a basically. Woman. No. She, like, I appreciate that. I'm seven months down the line from a broken ankle, yeah. can't walk properly. Yeah. Yeah, and and again, that, it's part it's part of it's part of her character, mm. and um, Mike shares the info. I really like this. I, I think uh, Mark Singer's really good in these scenes as well. Just how fucked off he is mm. with like, oh great, now I'm going to deal with you people. Yeah, you know, and he's got this his own is all thing, delaying me from sorting it all out. Yeah, it's yeah, his whole vibe. Yeah, he's not a delegator. Like, whereas no. like the reason he doesn't why... want to be a leader, he no. just wants to fuck them all off and get yeah. it done. And that's great. And that's why I like the fact that the leader of the heroes is a female character. Yeah. Because the male character is he's too caught up in his own shit. He wants to get his he, son back. He wants to give his son he back. He wants to he kill Diana because of what she did to him. He does not give a shit about the rest of them. No, no. He and if, if he aligns, son. then great. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but his, like you say, his motivation is get his son back, avenge his journalistic partner. Yeah. I mean, he's a good guy. Oh, um, he's but, 100% a good guy, but not not every person is a leader. Yeah. I wouldn't be a leader. No. I'm, well, I'm, I'm, I know of my character. I'm the person who the leader says, can you go and do this, 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 and this? And I will 100% say, yes, leader. Like, you know, I'd, I'd be the person stealing <coughs> the guns quite happily, yeah. like loading them up into the van and getting them organised. I would not be giving the rousing speeches to everybody. 
we all have our strengths. So Robert says, um, when Mike basically reveals to the resistance this insane information he's got, basically, that they're lizards, that they eat animals, that they do all this kind of stuff. Alive animals, I should say. Um, Robert basically goes into this explanation about how they could be lizards. And it only occurred to me during this scene that Robert is obviously based on Carl Sagan. He's wearing literally the same clothes that Carl Sagan wore in Cosmos, which was his very famous TV series in okay. the eighties, uh, about like, you know, the history. Uh, well, I mean, basically, he was America's view of the scientist in the eighties. Carl Sagan was, and looking at the wardrobe choices. Which one's Robert again? Um, the, the scientist, the dad, the, the main. Oh, the dad. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. right. Um, so you know, he was um, you know obviously fashioned on Sagan. And I keep you, thinking the guy with the glasses and the curly hair is the dude from that 70s show, even though it's not. Yeah, they've got a look, haven't they? Yeah, and, um, it's the same. We see Julie make a plan as well. And there's a nice moment as well where basically, she's like, right, we've got to make a plan. Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they all look at her. <laughs> and she starts, and I like the fact that she looks over at Ruby and Ruby's yeah. like, look, come on, you've got to do this. You've got to do it. And she basically comes up with a really sensible plan. She's right like, right, then. you know, that's something Plus, that we've got to do. We Sorry, the the minute that she starts talking about other people start contributing to the plans. So and actually coming up with ideas. Yeah, so she's not left on her own, like, have come up with everything herself. No. But they're looking to her to start the conversation Yeah, she needs off. to be kind of like a Pied Piper. Yeah, yeah. Um, to, to, you know, get things going. And um, that's when Robert realises that Robin's gone. Um we Don't you think it's odd that nobody else notices that Robin's gone? Well, it's a big place. Um, and, you know, they've all got their it own is, shit going but on. he literally walks through the circle going, Robin? Yeah. Robin? Robin? <laughs> yeah. TV logic. We see Diana and Brian um, talking about Robin and about a medical experiment. Um, we This is where we... Um, Robert stumbles across, across what we think is a kindly visitor. Mm. Um talking about the camp in the mountains. And I, I think that he plays, the actor who plays Robert, plays the decision really well. Like, you can see in his face the dilemma, the fuck, okay, well, if I do this, she's going to die. If I do that, they're going to die. Maybe I can bargain. And when the guy says to him, look, okay, one father to another, which is, you know, a really manipulative thing, obviously, mm. as we will learn, he's like, look, okay, all I want is to look good to my managers. Obviously, I have to attack the base. He's like, but... I won't do it until this time, so you can get all the people that you really care about out, but we can still get there and take all your equipment and we'll look like heroes. And Robert's like, okay, fuck, that's the best I'm going to get, I suppose. Mm. So he agrees. But but the thing is that obviously, you know, he, him and um, Robin were at this new urban um, resistance base in LA. Yeah. But there's, his, his wife and his younger two daughters uh, uh, are, are still there. Yeah. Um, and he basically is like, well, this is the only option I've got where somebody might not die, yeah. <laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, so, Well, because they're not all in the same place, he needs to try and, you know, rescue. I mean, Robin, if she just hadn't been a dick about it. Well, it's like you said when we were watching it. It's a Sophie's Choice moment, isn't mm. it? You can see him people thinking, you yeah. know, playing the odds. And... Um, so so he the the alien says, "Look, I make a promise as a father that I'll give you a head start, and I won't get there until four o'clock." Mm. 
we see Brian go to Robin, and we see Diana sort of perving through the glass. Uh, and the other thing to remember is well, like Kessinho with his eyes open looking at Diana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so uh, creepy. It is. And the other thing as well is, of course, is I mean, Diana, it's, got, it's worth mentioning, is she is, she's a scientist mm. as well. I mean, that's yeah. the irony. Well, she's the fact that they, So we see that the Resistance are looking to get weapons. Um, and that Mike basically is like, look, okay, guys, you know, I've got my own shit going on. Good luck to you. Yeah. Um, but I need to get on the mothership uh, to get my son. But also... He got the feeling from Martin that there's some other shit going on yeah. with the visitors that he's yet to figure out beyond yeah. them just being um, assholes and lizards. Yeah. You know? um, and that's these are the scenes where I'm like, yeah, fucking hell. Mark Singer does have a real Kevin Bacon energy about mm. him as well. It's, it's, a, it's an odd thing. Well, he even looks like him. I, I, for the listeners, I said to Mike at one point, what the hell else has he been in? Because he so reminds mm. me of someone. He was a definite type of the era as well. And his, his sister, Mark yeah, Singer's sister. The minute sister you is... said to me, um, he's a bit like Kevin Bacon, I was like, yes, that's yeah. exactly what it is. Like yeah. he and, just... and, and, and Mark Singer, his sister is uh, Laurie Singer, who was, she was one of the kids from Fame. Mm. And she was the female lead in um, Footloose mm. as well. I'll show you a picture of her as well. You'll recognise her. Um, and I it's know odd. What she looks like. Oh no, no! But when you look at it after watching V, you'll see how much her and her brother look alike, and it's weird. Oh, no, that's creepy. It's like seeing pictures of you as a kid and Chloe as a kid. Oh yeah. You can see that they're related, yeah, yeah, can't you? Very similar. Um, I, I liked the fact that um, there's some nice little weird humour moments in this episode as well, like the the bit where um, Julie's like where. They kind of agree to disagree, and they sort of say goodbye to each other. Where Donovan's mm-hmm. like, "Look, okay, you know, you're like this uh, Martin Luther King figure. Uh, I'm, I'm like, I'm a dad. He's trying to sort this shit out. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's a bit like Han Solo leaving Luke and Leia before the Death Star battle. Yeah. Um, and I like the fact that she's like, you know, you're good. I'd hate to lose you. And he's like, I'd, I'd hate to lose me too as well. That's like their, <laughs> that's his kind of I love you, I know sort of moment. Yeah, there. yeah. And um. We so they have a prayer, um, and one of my favorite. This is probably my favorite scene during it. During uh, this whole episode, is when Julie asks Caleb to say a prayer, mm. and he's just like being like, "Okay, Lord, you know we really need you here." And throughout the whole prayer, the camera is on Robert, just like mm. thinking. Hell. I'm yeah. thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. You know, and it's just it's a really fucking intense scene. Yeah, um, and and. As a parent, it is so hard because, you know, I know I would make the exact same choice. We can't be rational. I mean, it's not even about like... If if some of your children are at one location and and another of your children is at a different location, you will do whatever you yeah, need to it, do. You'd be in desperate, desperate scramble mm, mode, wouldn't you? Of course. You? Uh, so basically, there, there's, there's several parts to the resistance uh, resistance's plan. Part of it is that they want to fuck up the plants, the plant that um, Donovan's mother's husband runs, yeah. and that Caleb works up, and they're going to set bombs. I like the fact that Every character is in this for a reason. Like with Harmony, um, the kind of girl who works on the food truck turns up and sees that. You're like, oh yeah, she's in this as well. Yeah, yeah. And it's like everybody's in this for a reason. And yeah. and I think that that's one of the things about the storytelling of this. It's hard to define 
what it is that's good about it. But it's just the fact that you've got all these characters. None of them feel shoehorned in. Mm. Nothing feels like it's happening because it's being written, because it has to happen that way. Mm. Everything feels organic. And um, it's just fucking well written. <laughs> that's the only, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the only way I can think of no, explaining it. it. it so you see her turn up. And she sees Willie, the Robert Englund character, standing next to the bomb as mm. well. And um, she saves him as well. Uh, and Mike is using this as a diversion to get aboard the um, the shuttle to try and save his son and learn more about mm. the, the sort of grander conspiracy that's going on here. Mm. Um, I also want to mention, because I always forget to mention this whenever I've talked about the podcast in the past, I love the corridors on the mothership. You know those white of corridors? But something like You just love a house with corridors it's like, like they remind me a lot of the corridors. And this is a very specific area of Star Trek. They really remind me of the corridors on of the Enterprise in Star Trek the Motion Picture, the nineteen seventy nine movie. Right. And that was how the this was if in the 50s and the 60s, everything was like bako foil and shiny and all yeah. this kind of stuff. There was a period of time from about 1976 to about 1988 where that is what the inside of spaceships look like. And they don't look like that anymore. <laughs> so part of my enjoyment of going back and rewatching this is the warm jumper of like, yeah, that's what fucking spaceship interiors look like. <laughs> uh, you can keep your fucking awakenings and your... Dear you know, listeners, Michael would be the person who would live in a spaceship of that design if he could turn some kind of mid-70s terrace into a Star Trek corridor <laughs> that's it not even an entire house just, just a corridor I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got a simple taste he keys his way in with the key that he took back from uh, from Josh earlier on um, I love again one of my other favourite scenes here I think I mentioned this earlier on is when Ruby uh, says this one's for Abraham and she she, she yeah. throws the Monotov cocktail in and we see the sort of the, the cop love. kind of just like oh fucking yeah. hell that's something you don't see every day um, Mike goes to the secret part of the ship and he sees these giant tanks we start to see on the news as the um, the resistance are driving towards their big heist yeah. that acts of civil disobedience across Los Angeles seem to be growing. Yeah. And you get the feeling that part of that is this coordinated thing that the resistance are doing, but also... Monkey see, monkey you know, do. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, maybe we will just blow shit up, you know? Yeah. And... Um, well, if they're doing it, we might do it too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, one of the... Gr- I think one of the most wonderful aspects of humanity is our ability to get swept up in looting and destruction. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. I remember the Clapham riots. Well, yeah, well, you were near him, weren't you? And um, we see Mike... Um, sorry, we see the uh, resistance attack and they're using tactics like they've realised the brightness thing so they've got mirrors and they're dazzling them. We also see, though, that Which bullets don't work ingenious. on them. ingenious. It is simple but effective. We also see that bullets don't work on them. They're using yeah. machine guns and you, do, you see... Some of the visitors kind of recoiling, but then coming back into the fight. Yeah. So that's, that's something we didn't them. know. Mm. They're, they've obviously, I mean, being lizards, I suppose, they've got, you know, leather bit, skin and all it's that. It's a bit Borg. Yeah, it is a little bit as well. Um, Robert tells Julie uh, at this point about how, um, you know, he's like, fuck, I've got to tell you this, it's all going yeah. pear shaped. And then he jumps in the Jeep and starts heading and, towards the mountains. Yeah, because part of him knows that that guy was lying. Yeah, yeah. He's just like, I'm getting a really bad feeling about this. Um, Donovan and Martin have a conversation and he's like you know why were they dumping out because we saw in the last episode that they were dumping out the chemicals from the mm. side of the mothership yeah. and what we learn is that basically they're there for water and food mm. they want to drain the oceans and they want to eat the people yeah 
But what he says is interesting is that the, and I think this is part of maybe when I mentioned to you earlier on, Kenneth Johnson's sort of larger, longer game plan for the series. He mentions this plan could take a generation. So I think what we're seeing is, and this never happened in really in the show, but we're seeing Kenneth Johnson laying track for a very long story. Yes, so he says that the plan will take a generation. Yep. He also says there's something else I have to show you. Uh, we see the Bernsteins come home. Um, we see that um, he's been burned, the father, and that the grandfather isn't there. We're cutting between this... And they're very subdued and frightened. Yeah. We see... Uh, we're cutting between this and the stuff on the mothership with uh, Martin and Donovan. Mm. And we're seeing people in tubes like banks of them. And I've got to say, I thought that special effect looked really good. You know, when you see them all yeah, like off in the... So. That's something where I remember, because I've never watched this in HD before, and HD can expose effects that were designed oh, to be watched I on a small TV. Stood you know? up really well. And I was like, yeah, fucking yeah. hell. That was good. And um, what Martin reveals to Donovan is that the reason that they've got these people is that there's um, their troops for the leader... Uh, to be using against his enemy, who defeated him before, it's worth noticing, Yeah, and the rest are for food. And uh, uh, he said that the leader became the leader because uh, of charisma. He said promises of reforms and easy answers to difficult uh, problems mm. and um, desperation. He says, this happens on your planet. And, I mean, that's one of those moments where you're like, fuck me. And at the time, there was probably, in 1983, some contemporaneous example that you can attach mm. that from now we've got our own equivalence of that it just feels like there's always shit going on that you can absolutely there's always some bastard isn't there and and it's really depressing to know that 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 there's always this terrible terrible facet of humanity that is going to Try and fuck us over all the time. And I, I, I don't say this cynically because I'm quite an optimistic person. I generally think one of them. I can't remember who said this. It's a very famous quote, but it's the uh, the arc of humanity leans towards the positive. So my, yeah. my view, and I, I genuinely believe this. This isn't just me saying this because it's comfortable. Is if you can, if you look at humanity uh, and humankind as a graph, mm. I think it will go up. And people will be really great and do awesome things and you'll feel great about humanity and then something terrible will happen and it'll mm. drop down. Then it'll go up again. And I think this zigzag ultimately heads up. Mm. Ultimately, the arc of humanity goes towards the righteous. And but that arc has some fucking bad dips along the way, you know? I, I agree with you. That's you all over. It's one of the things I love about you. But I genuinely believe that. That isn't a self-defence mechanism. No, no, no. no. I know it's not. That's why I'm saying it. It's one thing I know about you to be 100%. Basically, everything will be all right in the end. You are relentlessly positive and uh, see the good in a situation. But that's logical. That's the logical thing to do because that is correct. It is correct to do that. It's not... But I, I am very much like... Well, this is shit. And you're like, well, shit now. There are shit things. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But I'm very, this is shit. And you are, it's shit now. Yeah. But ultimately, you will be okay. It, it, exactly. This but but it I will mean. be. It will. That is the truth. That is the truth. <laughs> it will be. 
and and that's not hippy dippy bullshit. There's thousands of years that's of precedent that prove this. We, we, we have, need that. No, we've evolved. We've we've gone through. Humanity has gone through religious fucking conquest. It's gone through dark ages, literal the dark ages. Mm. But ultimately, we always come out of it. Mm. We always eventually do. I mean, what you don't want to do is you don't want to find yours. Your you don't want your entire lifetime. Selfishly, you don't want your entire lifetime to be during one of those dips that mm. occur. And if you're lucky, it won't be. But eventually, it will go back up again, and the mm. arc of humanity will continue on positively. But it will. But it's not like a. It's not like a straight arc. No, it's of this arc it's of. Not. It's you know. It's it's shimmers. Mm. Um, but ultimately, it does improve, <laughs> and that's kind of what's going on here because, you know, we see that um, the. The, the the villain, the leader, has been defeated before. Mm. So they're like, okay, well, we know if we just wait long enough... Someone s- will come and... Somebody who's just got bigger muscles than him but happens to be ideologically aligned to us will come along. Mm. It's just a question of making sure that our lives aren't unimaginably shit. And hopefully you know, they won't fuck us over in the same... Well, hopefully they won't, yeah, they won't be at worse. At the same time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, so we see that the... Um, it's a bit like having a terrible adoptive parent finding your birth mother and for them to be worse. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, ignorance is bliss sometimes. Yeah. But basically what we're seeing is, is that when Martin says this to Mike, when Martin says, look, you've got comparable precedent on your own planet for mm. a leader with charisma or cult of personality that's the term that's used yeah. a lot whether it's adolf hitler or i'm not going to use contemporary examples i think we can all imagine who they are yeah but you know the idea that people come along and they they appeal to the disenfranchised um usually through over simplification mm-hmm. of solutions yeah and they gain power and Wolverine, often, being one of them. often that power is fueled by um, demonization of the other. You know, that's a yep. powerful thing. You know, yep. um, and often there's an element of um, implication that your personal freedoms, as you see them, will be improved. And what mine say is the thing, like pitting humans against humans. That is that is how. Um, yeah, like know, the Bernsteins. That's what their story is about. Yeah, and, and and I think the thing that's happening here is that we can watch this now and go, "Oh my gosh, this is so prescient." It's like they saw Trump coming. Oh, it's don't like see it. it's like they, you they don't didn't see it in the time. It, it's just that there's always going to be some bastard. Yeah, you know. And if this was being watched by an audience in forty years' time. Mm. Some other bastards probably come along. Uh, but, uh, I, I remember being at high school and in history class and learning about World War Two and how World War Two began hmm. and how it was off the back of World War One and the fact that they had these crazy reparations to pay yeah. um, for you know the whole battle of World War One and how Germany was in this like terribly dark place and. Hitler shone this light that that like wasn't a good light, but it was a it it be hard, so hard to resist. 
it's so hard to resist. And, and if, he's, if he's saying to you... It's an easy answer. I've got the solution yeah. to this problem. Of course. And you've been in the doldrums for that long. But one of the things that I think... to believe he's right. Of course. And, and, and it's so desirable. And one of the things I think that the V does very well specifically is it's so easy for us to say, well, we've been through World War Two, We've been through um, the... The, the the genocide of the Jews. Mm. So we've learned from that. Mm. That can never happen again. But that's assuming that these things happen on a grand scale. They yeah. don't. They happen in living rooms. They happen in, in families. They happen in moments. small worlds. Yeah. And they happen because people, like Daniel's dad, say, it's going to blow over. Yeah. And what th- this, this part of the, these two episodes is about is that resistance isn't space battles and explosions. Mm. It's... It's not futile. It, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a middle-class family mm. saying no. Mm. You know, and if enough of those yeah. do yeah. that, yeah. Then, then, then you're going to win. If, even if it means that you are pitted against other people in your family. Yeah. And it's, mm. it's interesting as well that this has all happened... On the visitors' planet, because Martin says, like, like Donovan was like, "Well, didn't you, didn't you speak out about it when you, your leader said he was going to go and like eat us?" You know, yeah. and he said there was a resistance on the planet, but we didn't speak out until it was too late. So it had happened to them, and the thing that people yeah. and what that's about is we have to remember, and this is a cliche, but it's applicable here: the first country to become occupied by the Nazis. Was Germany? Yeah, they were the first. The first victims of Nazism was Germany, hmm. and that's what the allegorical subtext of this conversation is about. Yeah. Is the first victims of the leader uh, this kind of abstraction of, mm. of ambition and evil and cult of personality was, was the visitors? Planet was them. Yeah. You know, and then they were too scared to speak up, so they went to yeah. Earth, and then they were too scared to speak yeah. up, and then and these things, yeah. you know, they build, uh, they build until build. you know until he gets to a point, and um, so this is where he says, you know, uh, that we see that Tony's died, uh, we see um, he, Donovan find Sancho the gardener, mm-hmm. um, it's basically looking like shit, saying that he just defied them and he spit in their faces, um, and uh, he's kind of similar to um, the Bernstein grandfather in the way that he's been already been through some shit on Earth yeah. before the visitors came. Like, yeah. see, often these um, marginalised people are the first to be defiant yeah. because they've already got... They're like, oh, we've seen this shit before, whether yeah. it's a, a, a survivor of the Holocaust or... Um, an illegal immigrant in yeah. America yeah. who knows what it's like to have to sneak into places to sort of, you know, live your life. Yeah. We see Martin driving along, uh, sorry, Robert's driving along in uh, looking at his watch and he sees it's 2.30. So he's like, okay, I've got an hour and a half to get to the base before it all kicks off. We see Mike and Martin shake hands and uh, he takes Robin and Sancho onto the shuttle. Uh, and then we get to the chase with Sancho shooting like Luke Skywalker in the sort of seats on the Millennium Falcon. A bit last starfighter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a bit of pew pew. Um, we learn very quickly um, that the uh, the visitor lied and that they are actually still going to go and attack the base. They're mm. not going to give them a head start. Um, 
we see Polly, the younger sister of the Maxwells. Uh, this is the most 80s thing ever. Is she sat there playing mousetrap with an E.T. plushie. <laughs> it's like, with the exception of, I don't know, a fucking Rubik's Cube on the table. It really couldn't have been a... <laughs> it was uh, it, it was it was pretty on the on the nose there. Uh, I mean, I suspect this was the year after ET, so this was like part of the cultural zeitgeist. Mm. Um, this is the moment you mentioned where Sancho says we need some luck, so he puts his son son's cap on. And we see the camp getting attacked. The resistance show up, um, and then it, I want to talk about this scene because this is, I think, the best moment in the whole the whole miniseries. Is you and I have talked before about this kind of cliche of when shit gets real and you go into slow motion yeah. and you have the horror of war and all that, I honestly think this was the first time this technique was used. Yeah. I've seen a lot of shit and I remember watching this at the time and being really blown away. Like, wow, that's a really powerful filmmaking. And I talk on the podcast with Kenneth Johnson about this and I was like, was this the first one? And he's like, people have asked me that. He's like, I'm not sure. He's like, I'm not sure if I was subconsciously emulating something when I did mm. this or whether... But I can't think of an earlier example where you've no, had this I thing where either. where you're looking around. I mean, it's in Saving Private Ryan and later stuff. Um, it's all slow mo and, and like, like long blinking yeah, and, and kind aw- of awful things happening, like losing their lives around you. Yeah, yeah. and I, I but, and so it's funny watching this now. It's easy to kind of you know uncontextually see it as kind of a cliched thing, mm. but um, the sequence. So, so you've got Julie. Um, you know, seeing all this shit happening, and she's obviously like, you know, she's a scientist. She's not. And she said before, you know, she's all about saving lives. She's mm-hmm. never shot a gun in her life, yeah. and she's seeing all this stuff happening. And we're seeing uh, Josh, the friend of uh, Donovan's son, and his carer have been shot at, and it kicks back in. She comes back to reality, and she sees Diana's shuttle coming over. And that's when we cut into the remake of the moment where we saw in El Salvador mm. of Donovan watching that revolutionary standing alone, shooting his gun shooting. at the helicopter. Yeah. And the way that that's framed, and I'm kind of, I've got goosebumps just talking about it because it's such a great moment. Um, the way that the music swells and the way she faces off and she's just shooting. And you think she's going to die when mm. you're watching it. Oh, and then it yeah, comes around yeah, and you see Diana see her. And <laughs> even Diana's like, Fucking, I like her. You know, there's there's some weird. She's like, I've got to kill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You represent hope. Yeah, yeah. And so she comes round, and then Donovan comes in, and Millennium Falcons it and shoots all that. But I think that that moment from when she starts looking around and having her horrors of more war moments to the end of that sequence is the best part of this whole thing. Mm, yeah, it's so well staged mm. and executed and performed, and kind of if you look at this as a two-part thing i know there's these other parts and all that but if you look at this as just a two-part that's the true climax mm. of it is that yeah. moment and all of these characters coming together donovan coming in um all of the resistance uh julie evolving into this kind of almost mythic kind of like figure that's the kind of the that's the moment you yeah. know in, in this way it all kind of comes together and um so um, we see um, Robert find his wife dying. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a nice little moment as well, which I never noticed until I watched it several times, is that when she's dying, she does this weird thing 
where she sort of runs her fingers over his face, yeah, yeah, down his down nose. Down his nose and, and down his lips. That's from, you know, the scene in the first episode where they're talking about the party they went to. Mm. She's doing that to him when they're talking. And it's almost wow. like it's just this weird, like all couples have got their own little idiosyncrasies. Oh, and you get the feeling that that's just something that... <laughs> What's ours? I don't do that. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, no. Their own. Their own. In, well, no, it's like me. I, I know what ours is, but I'm not going to say it here. So I'm the small spoon. You know, it's, it's, and, and they. But I think it's nice that, you know, in her dying moment, she's got this little tactile call back to this really small moment that you probably don't notice yeah. when you watch it. And it's just, again, it's those, it's those small moments that make these things so yeah. sort of like, you know. It, Tangible, and he's he's about ready to off himself because yeah. he thinks that basically everybody's dead. Yeah, and it's his fault. And yeah. and the the I mentioned to you off off microphone that I love the fact that everybody's got their own character themes. Like even Robert and his wife, there's a theme that's playing during that sequence in the first episode where they're kind of like you know they've come back from the party. And a slightly darker, minor key version of it plays during this scene. And even that, even these really secondary characters have got their own themes. And you, you won't notice it when you're watching it. You won't think about it. I've, I've watched this loads of times, so I notice it. But it's there, and I think it resonates, and, yeah. and you kind of notice it. But so he's basically, as you say, he's going to blow his brains out. But then he he sees Polly, he sees his younger daughters, you know, run over to him, and, and they're reunited. It, they get, you know... It's nice to see that the Maxwell's, apart from, you know, the dead wife. Uh, <laughs> fuck her, fuck her. It is a bit like, oh, well. It's, you know. it's like, well, you know, collateral damage. Yeah. You know. And, like, I, I like the fact that he's about to, what, I don't like the fact that, I think it's amazing the fact that he's about to kill himself because he thinks everybody's dead. But then when he realises it's just his wife who's dead, he's like, Well, no, I think, oh, it's, I think it's more, I think it's more that he, he's realised his daughters are still alive, so he's there. So maybe it's kind of like, okay, I'll just shoot myself in the foot. Yeah. How's that? Is that a compromise? Just like, but it's it's kind of like, oh, well, charming. Yeah. You know, oh, it's fine now. It's just me. <laughs> yeah. If that was us, you would actually come back from the dead. <laughs> just to get, yeah. Well, that's just effing marvellous, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, yeah, I yeah, believe yeah. that you did. I'm going to haunt the shit out of you. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we see Sancho... Um, have a little handshaky moment with Mike. He's like, we fought good. Uh, I like the moment between the uh, the cop character and Elias, where he's like, they ain't so tough. And he's like, what, what, what are you talking about? Like, I loved it, but he was like, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like they're waiting for this. Fucking cray-cray. They, they're so tough. Uh, and then we get but a look I at... I kind of love that because it's it's such a... That's a realistic kind of moment. It's such a light moment. Yeah. But like you say, realistic moment. in like... And, it, I just, it's so buffy. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Really buffy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, oh, God, I loved yeah, it. Yeah, very, very ahead of its time. And uh, we see, um, we, we get several, a bit like Return of the King, we get a whole bunch of wrap up scenes. We see uh, Robin is feeling sick, which, Robin, which in television can only mean one thing. get in the bin because she's now pregnant with yeah. an alien, basically. And um, we, see, we see Mike go to his mother and um, try to reason with her. And she says, look, I'm a survivor. Like Beyonce. I'm, a <laughs> I'm not going I always think of that scene in the Orville when he's saying goodbye to those aliens and he quotes that song. He's like, I'm a survivor. I'm not going to give up. And they're like, they're wise words. Whose words are those? And he's like, about 14 different people. <laughs> 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 
Um, we see Robert uh, go to visit the Bernsteins and say, look, we really need your help. And they're scared. Mm. He's like, we need you. We need a safe house. And his wife, uh, the Bonnie Bedilly character, is not up for it. And that's when he reads the notes from yeah. uh, his father. And he's like, we must fight the darkness. Uh, and, and the moment of that that really resonates is when he says, look, I know I'm going to die. And he says, um, I just hope that I can be as brave as your mother was yeah. in that situation. Um, and that's when, and I think this is really when, this is kind of Kenneth Johnson's whole uh, dissertation, mm. is when Stanley, the the middle generation Bernstein, says, we have to help them or we haven't learned a thing. Mm. That's the... Yeah, that's it. Yeah, really, hundred um, percent. And you know, it's about learning from, like, really learning from history, not just saying that on Twitter. <laughs> you know, like, like actually learning and changing history. Yeah, by by behaving in a different way when the same circumstances come up at great personal risk. Yeah, and um, like so whether we, that means you're going to die or not. Yeah, so we finish up with Julia, uh, Julie, sorry, and Elias in a really nice scene where they've sent the signal out mm. and. Um, you know, they hope that everything's going and to be he okay. Completely marks their secret base yep. with a great big red V. He does the V, and then they finish up. So, um, before we get to uh, the listener feedback, which I've just yes. remembered we're going to be doing, yep. uh, any final thoughts on V, Hannah? Um, loved it, absolutely loved it. But I absolutely, one hundred percent, have to watch the final battle. I think you'll enjoy. It's good. It's good. You'll enjoy it, and it's nice to have that. Um, I, I know that you are somebody who enjoys closure. I, I do enjoy closure, and I did not get it from these episodes. No. Um, but if if these two episodes were the only episodes, if there was nothing further, I would still feel the same in that it was so good. I think if these were the only so two episodes, well it would be so this... compelling, emotional, well-written. Entertaining oh. as well. I think that's the thing. Well written, well directed. Like if this was made now, it would be miserable. Mm. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not like you know, but I think it's not a fucking sitcom. No, but but I think that having that kind of does have a lightness of having that nineteen eighty three glazing on it is actually Mm. weirdly beneficial. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, I agree. But but I think that if they hadn't have made any more, which very easily could have happened, it would have just been this kind of fun weird hey do you remember this thing i mean it kind of is that anyway um but um but yeah i I agree i mean rewatching this now it's so good and i think that it's what i think some audiences might struggle with just the fact that it's old um and that it's part of this um, i think if you struggle that it's old you're not actually paying attention. No, it's, I mean, yeah, I mean, watching with one eye on your phone at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You need to pay attention to it. Yeah, yeah. And like a lot of things that we talk about on this podcast, it's one of those kind of like you need to know it's good. Mm. And I wasn't sure how you're going to respond to it because I, I mean, you're a human being, you know, uh, Am I? I, as far as I know. Oh my god! And, and I thought I was a lizard person. <laughs> and it's it's difficult to know, but I mean, I, I think that. The impression I get from you, Hannah, by the way, just so you know, I'm not talking to you, the audience, mm-hmm. is um, that I know that you kind of can see past those contextual era-specific trappings. Mm. Um, and 
Yeah, that doesn't bother me. If if the story and the writing are great... Yeah, exactly. It, it just does not bother me aesthetically. A, a good song is a good like, song, whether it sounds I, like it was recorded in I the 70s or... I might laugh a bit at the Garth Marenghi feeling yeah. in the first but that's, part. But that's kind of part but of I the... I kind of love it. It's kind of part of the fun yeah, as well, though, isn't course. it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, because now it doesn't, it everything's doesn't, so slick that you don't yeah, have those rough edges. But it that, doesn't stop the enjoyment of it. Yeah, Like, yeah. it... It adds to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, um, and Babylon 5 was absolutely yeah, like yeah. that. I mean, I, I love V, and I think that, that it's... My, my relationship with this is, um, like I say, a huge part of it is nostalgia, but I don't think that... But that's not all, you know. I think that I, I watched this at an age where um, it did what it needed to do. It, it, because it, if I'd have... I would never have watched a documentary about World War Two. Mm. I would never have watched a miniseries or movie about World War Two. Yeah. Um, but I'd watch V. Yeah. And what I learnt from and that... And what you're getting from V is basically what a documentary would yeah, tell it, you. It, 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 exactly. And this is what one of the great things about allegorical story. I mean, this is why the Bible is full of parables. Mm. Because nobody wants to be lectured. And I think that this is a great example of what... Um, science fiction can do, you know, which is to reframe yeah. things, and um, it's just a lot of fucking fun. It really um, is. Okay, Hannah, feedback. Let's do it. Okay. Um, and thank you for this feedback, by the way. Um, I have not read either message, so I don't know what. I didn't even know we had any. But uh, both messages have uh, email titles that refer to V. So I knew it was because of V. Okay. Okay. Oh, so the, no, no, neither of these are Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? No. Okay. Um, so the first one, the subject is, visitors are your friend. Okay. Are these some people we know? No. Oh, scared. I'm scared now. <laughs> are they nice? They're not going to be mean, are I they? No, I haven't read them. Okay. Literally virgin reading. Okay. Hi, guys. Nick from Los Angeles here. I found your podcast based on your V episode, and I've got to say, I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank God Woo-hoo. for that. You guys are smart and fun, and I will be checking out your Watchmen episodes too, as I love that show. I was really worried that Hannah wasn't going to like it, because I could tell that Mike was pretty enthusiastic about it, and thought, God, I hope he doesn't have to defend it for an hour. God, that would have been brutal. And then the second episode, <laughs> you'd be like, it's still shit, Mike. <laughs> Looking forward to part two, and whilst I agree that the final battle isn't as good as the first two parts, it's nice that it gives closure of a sort. Won't say any more as I don't want to spoil, but just wanted to say you have a new fan. Speak soon, Nick. That's nice. Well, Nick, you have absolutely made our day. That's amazing. It's also nice to know that the, uh, the tactical choice to do sorbet episodes based yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and you know and what, Nick? I, I, I was right there with you, Doug. I, I was feeling it as well. Like, where, where when we started watching this, I could tell, I know Hannah enough to know that about halfway through the first episode, I was like, oh, yeah, she's liking this. Mm. Like, the body language. Yeah. But it's difficult to know because Hannah is, um, she's an emotional beast. <laughs> and I think that it's one of those things where I think if we'd have maybe watched it on the wrong night when you're in the wrong frame of mind it could have gone the other way um but he didn't and i'm very happy about that no i i i would like to say that i think you know me well enough to know uh 
Um, I wouldn't have suggested it if I'd have thought you weren't. No, you exactly. I th- I think you know the type of stuff that I will engage with, yep. and I think like Babylon Five was the big surprise to yep. you that I really, really just went for. Well, it. that's why I said that, that that was the thing that made me think you'd like these. The fact that um, I uh, there was a lot of geeky stuff that I I like that comes from dark corners of the geeky universe. Yeah. Um, but where I feel the quality is high enough that it will punch through. Yeah. You know? And I think that's one of those. But mm. uh, um, the, the one thing that Nick said that um, made me very happy was um, that he was um, looking to go and listen to the Watchmen episodes. Yeah. I've seen the show because what the thing that I think is nice about getting to do the Sorbet episodes is... Uh, um, they're very inclusive, you know, we yeah. get to bring more people in. Yep. And um, it's, I like the idea that people might, um, you know, maybe don't watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. Uh, or only watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and then maybe don't listen to these ones and then come back. Or maybe they do, I don't know. And it's just, it's fun watching. Because I noticed, um, not to pull the curtain back too much, but um, the first V episode that we put out had uh, like really big download figures. And I think that was because we were accessing a different well, group I think of people. It's you know, kind of amazing that we've had two emails, and I've had a couple of new followers on Instagram purely because we're watching. Vic. Yeah, 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 and 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 that's it's kind of um, without sounding cynical, it's like a, a an easy win, you know, uh, for for getting more but, listeners. But also, it's something that we are actively interested in. It's yeah, yeah. Not, we're not doing it's it not an exploitation no, cynical no, kind of thing no. uh, it's just but it's a nice side effect and hearing that um that nick will go back and listen to the watchman episodes these things that we recorded yeah, like last nick, year is great because it's i've said a million times that i like the idea of this being a an evergreen library and podcast definitely and, feedback on those episodes nick if you want like obviously if you want to but don't feel like because we've already covered them and like done it all that we don't want to hear what you think. No, I mean, we, we um, would happily... We 100% um, want to hear. You know, I mean, we, we will um, address feedback of our Watchmen episodes before our Modern Family episode, yes. you know. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so thank you. That's awesome Thanks, to hear. Thanks, Nick. Um, right, so the next uh, email is called Don't Read Until You Have Watched Part 2 of V. Okay. And it's from... Clear. Oh, so this is the one that made you. This suggest- is the one that made me not read anything that okay. was in our inbox. Okay. Hello, Mike and Hannah. Claire from South Carolina here. I found your show through your Watchmen episodes, and they were by far my favourite discussion of the show. Ooh, I sought out a few podcasts covering it, but they were either too dry and reverential or too bro. Yours was a really nice middle ground, as it was smart as hell, but also very fucking funny. I really wish I knew you guys in real life. Oh, us too. <laughs> yeah. Come and meet just us. A little, just, just a little bit of bro. <laughs> not too much. I'm not able to commit at the moment to the time investment to watch S.H.I.E.L.D., so I was very happy to see you were covering V, as it's a favourite of mine. Oh, wow, so she's she listened to our Watchmen episodes. And it's just reconnected with yeah. us. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It never gets talked about um, too. Uh, so I am glad you are shining a light on it. And it was an excuse to reconnect with your show. 
I wanted to mention a couple of my favourite moments. The moment where Julie sees all the carnage at the camp and it goes all slow-mo choral music is amazing. I know this has become a bit of a cliche, but I honestly think this is one of the earliest... <laughs> of the oh my God. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. It is. I honestly, I really wow. think we're onto something here. Claire, I'm so pleased that I uh, read this. At I the really end. think that Kenneth Johnson yeah. created a trope. Yeah. I think you and, you and Mike are on the same page here. <laughs> um, Kenneth Johnson is usually discussed as a writer producer, but it has to be said he is a great director. The way that Julie faces off alone against the shuttle and the rising orchestral music echoing the El Salvador rebel yeah. facing. The helicopter alone at the beginning of part one is one of my favourite sequences in anything ever. And Hannah, ignore Mike. Watch the final battle. (laughs) It's good to have the closure. Just go in knowing it's a little sillier than the original. And the story was well written written by Johnson, but you will be fine. Um, Also, you get to see some really awful piece of shit characters get their comeuppance. Keep up the great work, and we'll check in during the next Sorbet episodes, unless I decide to take a punt on S.H.I.E.L.D. Claire. Wow. That <laughs> is the best email I think I've read. Simpatico. One of us. Ever. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I loved it. Thank you so much, Claire. <laughs> so great to know that someone is just checking in for the Sorbet episodes. Yeah, I know. God. How fantastic. Pressure. Yeah. Mike, uh, your thoughts, please. Um, yeah, well, I mean, Christ, I agree on all of those things, yeah. I, and I think it, it is. It, it's it's easy to forget uh, the direction mm. on this because uh, you know TV is such a writer producer medium. You know that it is actually that well directed, and I think you know the, the, the final. But it's funny. I was thinking about. I started thinking about this when um, we mentioned before that like Dean was watching all five parts, and I know that a lot of people don't really differentiate between the first two parts and the, the the final battle. Yeah. And I think it's just because I'm like an uber V-geek in that regard. So I can kind of like see the nuances. And, you know, I, I know, you know, I've read a bit of behind the scenes stuff, spoke to people mm. who've been involved in the show. But I think that, you know, if you sat down and watched um, all five parts of it, you know, then... I don't know really whether it would be that obvious that they were made by, you know, the the, the final three parts were made by committee. Yeah. And the first part, I think there's a slightly more of a sense of cohesion, but it's almost like it's not that different than the jump from The Empire Strikes Back to Return of the Jedi. Yeah. You know, Return of the Jedi was a little bit sillier, a few more Muppets, you know, <laughs> um, not as dark, mm. but still kind of, Still amazing. The same yeah. story. That's probably the best analogy I can think of is that the, 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 the you know, V2. I just, um, I just really love that we, that I had the foresight to leave that to the end of the episode yeah. because that really, if I'd read that before watching it, A, I don't think the significance of it would have hit because I wouldn't have known what she was talking about and B 
you know, we've just had this huge discussion and to see someone else, like, yeah. affirming that is lovely. Or revealing how unoriginal our thoughts are, <laughs> <laughs> depending on no, how you look at it. no. Just knowing that we're not the only person to think that yeah, and yeah, how yeah. cool that well, is. Well, it's, it's community. You know, that, that, that's what it is. I think that if you do watch the final battle, because I've actually downloaded the final battle because I was going to watch it. I thought maybe you... Because I downloaded the final Don't battle. Don't you dare watch uh, well, it without I, me. I, I, I got it before um, I even pitched the idea of doing this mm. because I... I Kind of was like, I really want to rewatch V. Mm. And then I was like, well, if I'm going to rewatch V, I can sew it into this other mm. you know, thing that I do in my life. Um, and I'd, I was like, well, okay, we'll do the first two. And, and I downloaded the, the final battle purely because I just figured that, I figured that either you just wouldn't like V mm. or you'd like it, but you'd be like, okay, you know, that's, that's enough. I've seen it. I, I feel like yeah. I had an experience and I've seen some characters have a story arc and I feel yeah. you know fat, happy by that. And that I could then... You know, when you're out, <laughs> watch, you know, the rest of it. But I think that if you do watch the rest of it, we, sh- you probably, we probably should update maybe just on a, I don't know, like a what we've watched well, this, bit. It's uh, funny you say that. Because because, uh, because all these people have listened <laughs> to the, these well, episodes. What I'm thinking is probably not going to get a huge amount of feedback for Fringe or Modern Family just because they're far more mainstream things. Well, I don't you say that, but I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. Oh, I don't know either. I don't think we'd get any feedback for thee, but we've like had like fucking double the download numbers that yeah. we have for our Shield episodes, so who the fuck knows what I'm talking about. Um, so if we don't have any feedback, we'll we'll talk about the final battle. Okay. You yeah. know? Just like Yeah. Yeah. Just give your thoughts. In that feedback. Thing. Well, I mean, we'll talk about it whichever way it goes. Like, we'll just we'll find a place to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Um, well, um, thank that's you us. so much for those emails. So, what what, what are we Nick doing next time, Hannah? Cla- Nick and Claire. Yeah. Um, that was some good shit. That both was. Of you, they were amazing emails, and we and having were- feedback at the end of the show. I'm getting serious. Um, early 2010 Chinstroker versus Punter vibes here, you know. Okay, so that was part two of V, the miniseries. Before we get into the interview with Kenneth Johnson, uh, Hannah, could you just tell our listeners what we're going to be talking about on the next episode? Next episode, we'll be taking a very big swerve and looking at the pilot episode of Modern Family. The American sitcom series? Indeed. Excellent stuff. Okay, so uh, thank you for listening to the main show, guys. And we are now going to go over to an interview uh, that I conducted some time ago uh, on my other podcast, Chinstroker vs. Punter. So the other voice you will hear on this is my co-host of that podcast, Paul. And the other voice that you will hear on that is Kenneth Johnson, uh, the uh, creator, writer, producer, director of the original V miniseries, which we have a conversation with him here. So enjoy this, and we will be back to talk about Modern Family next time and then the show after that we'll be returning with season four of marvel's agents of shield so speak to you soon and enjoy the interview we have a special treat for you this evening we are very lucky to be joined by writer producer and director kenneth johnson a name certainly anybody of paul and i's generation will recognize as the creative force behind the six million dollar man and its spin-off the bionic woman also, The Incredible Hulk, the original V miniseries, and Alien Nation and its sequel movies. 
several of Kenneth's shows have been rebooted, and Kenneth himself has published a sequel novel to his own original four-hour miniseries with V, the second generation. Kenny, thanks for making a couple of 30-something nerds very happy and <laughs> agreeing to come on our show. No, it's my pleasure. I'm exhausted just hearing all that I did. I had no idea I'd done that much, actually. I know your, your, your time management skills are beyond reproach, sir. <laughs> just going to jump into questions. Paul and I are going to kind of tag team a little bit here, and we're going to try and uh, milk you for all your worth for the next 45 minutes. First of all, Kenny, um, one that doesn't have to look at your filmography in sort of in both as a producer, writer, and director to see that there is a, a stream of science fiction running through it all. Now, have you always felt an affinity for sci-fi and genre stories specifically, or did it just kind of work out that way? Uh, well, I, I always tell my uh, directing and writing students to be very careful what their first success is, because that's what people will want them to do for the rest of their lives, you know? Uh, if your first success is uh, is, uh, is Rocky or a boxing movie, then, uh, oh, yeah, let's get the boxing movie guy. Uh, if it's a Western, let's get the Western guy. And um, uh, I did um, – uh, I, I was interested in science fiction as a kid. I read a good deal of it, but I also read a lot of other things. And I had a very eclectic uh, education at uh, at Carnegie – it was then Carnegie Tech. It's now Carnegie Mellon University at the drama department there. Um, where we were trained in the classic theater from the Greeks and uh, through the Romans, through Shakespeare and uh, uh, and all the way up to the uh, the contemporary writers of the 20th and uh, 20th century, and so my training had, had was very broadly based and uh, uh, and not really centered on any sort of science fiction stuff at all. Uh, and I had always envisioned that I would do a, a range of projects in my uh, in my career, uh, but as I said, what happens is uh, when you when you are lucky enough to have created uh, to the Bionic Woman, which becomes an enormous hit, and then you're producing at the same time the Six Million Dollar Man, uh, then very quickly people say, "Oh well, you know, you're that sci-fi guy." <laughs> Particularly when the next thing they ask you to do is, uh, I remember Frank Price, who was running Universal, uh, while well, as I was doing The Bionic Woman, and he called me one day and said, Kenny, we've just acquired the rights to several of the Marvel Comics superheroes. Which would you like to do? And I said, gee, none of them, Frank. You know, I mean, I don't get along well with people in spandex and primary colors. <laughs> uh, you know, it's tough. Um, but uh, I, I, I finally decided that I could take one of the projects um, it, uh, actually, it came from very quickly. I'll tell you, my wife Susie, probably the most literate woman I've ever known, uh, had given me a, a novel to read about um, oh three or four months earlier, and I was in the midst of it—a novel I had never read by Victor Hugo called *Les Misérables*. And uh, and I was literally in the middle of reading that when Frank asked me if I would do one of the Marvel comic shows. Um, and and I had so I had Jean Valjean and the fugitive concept of uh, him trying to escape Inspector Javert uh, in my head, and I realized that there was a way to take a little bit of that uh, Victor Hugo and a little bit of Robert Louis Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde and this what I consider to be rather ludicrous project called The Incredible Hulk, and blend them together into a uh, into an adult psychological drama. Uh, this fugitive element that, that you refer to about the Incredible Hulk, though, I mean, certainly, I mean, again, 
people from from mine and Paul's generation. I mean, I'm, I'm 37. Paul, you're 35, are you? Yes, I'm a couple of years younger. Yes. <laughs> you, you'd like to point that out. Thank you. Um, the, the one element we very often remembered about, well, most often remembered about that show, is the fugitive element of it. Yeah. I mean, particularly the, the the ending of the episodes with. Um, Banner walking away. I mean, I mean something that I mean we'll we'll, we'll get onto this more, particularly when we get to V. But I think that as far, as far as genres to be associated with, science fiction and fantasy does seem to have that flexibility to tell lots of different types of stories. I mean, would you, would you agree with that, Kenny? Oh, absolutely. I think that the the beauty of uh, of working in um in fa- in fantasy or in what I would sort of call contemporary mythology, which is essentially what we were doing, was to tread on much of the same ground that that the Greeks and the Romans had tread on in the creation of their gods and uh, uh, and the the essence of uh, of Greek drama, of course, was based on the flawed hero whose 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 um, hubris, as it was called. This false pride made him think that he could do things and accomplish things that were perhaps better left to the gods. And in fact, that's what Dr. David Banner was doing. Uh, and it was a very classic sort of, sort of story. But I agreed to do it only if Frank would give me something else in return that was of literally a classical nature. I had always been very fond of uh, Sir Walter Scott's novel of Ivanhoe which I never thought had been very well done previously. And I said, Frank, I'll do the Incredible Hulk pilot for you, but in return I'd like to do a four-hour miniseries of Ivanhoe. And that was our deal. Um, and, because, and so I was so eager to get the Hulk out of the way that I wrote the whole script in about six or seven days, literally. And, uh, and of course, you know, it went on and became this huge uh, international success. And ask me if Ivanhoe has ever yet been made by me. No, sorry. One for them, one for you. Ended up just being one for them. Well, that's it. But I. But this is not in any way to 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 uh, belittle the uh, the work that the fantastic producers and writers and actors that I. I had to work with on the Hulk uh, accomplished because uh, the Hulk, interestingly, the largest audience for that show was adult women. And the second largest audience was adult men, and then teenagers, and then kids after that. Uh, so we were always endeavoring to do, and I, pretty well succeeding, I guess, to do a, uh, a program that was adult in its appeal and that would uh, uh, would have a depth and a substance to it. I think some of the adults turned on the show to begin with because their kids wanted to see the big green guy crash through the wall. But very quickly they realized, wait a minute, there's something more going on here. There's real humanity there are real stories there are real little morality plays that we were doing and of course we had the pathos as you mentioned of of uh, dr banner walking off alone at the end of every episode uh to that solo piano uh, of joe harnell's and uh, uh and so the hulk hit several different level uh, several different visceral levels one it hit people right in the gut where they have felt that urge to kill that that desire to explode to let the primitive childish emotion inside of them come out we've all felt that um, at the same time, uh, there was the adult side of it, the David Banner side of it, the responsible adult side of it that was trying to control this this thing and literally make it go away. And and it was that dichotomy, I think, that made the show so successful for for so long. Mm. Now, j- just to go back a couple of years, you made reference to um, the Six Million Dollar Man and the Binding Woman earlier. I mean, P- Paul's got a question in regards to that. Yeah, well, when the, when the 
two Barnet shows were at their height of their fame. They they were both cultural phenomenons. Did were you aware of that at the time? Did you get a sense of that while whilst you were working on them? Uh, yeah, you, you did very, pretty quickly because uh, all of a sudden the networks loved you and you could do no wrong, and um, you know and they sort of got out of the way. When you ever have, whenever you have a hit show, it's a great place to be because they leave you alone. You know, because they, they have no idea why it's a hit, but um, uh, but they are wise enough in most cases to get out of your way and let you do it. I mean, yeah. uh, William Goldman, a great. Uh, screenwriter uh, from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and all the President's Men and such has has sort of created a, a legend around himself because of his statement that in Hollywood nobody knows anything <laughs> and uh, uh, and it's really true and including myself incidentally you never have an idea when you're doing it that it's going to suddenly you know become the the cover story on every magazine in in America uh Lindsay Wagner after the first couple of episodes uh tried to go to Disneyland with her nieces one day and she couldn't get through the gate because as soon as people saw her there was suddenly a thousand people around her and she couldn't move <laughs> um, and it was uh, so very quickly we realized that we that we were sort of uh, we had sort of captured lightning in a bottle. Uh, the six million dollar man had been around a year or two before I got to it. Uh, my friend Steve Bochco, uh, who had been at Carnegie in the drama department with me uh, and had gotten into Universal before I did, introduced me around at Universal. He was a story editor at the time, and uh, uh, and one of the people that he that he introduced me to was Harv Bennett, who was doing the Six Million Dollar Man. It was in its second season, I think, and, not, and sort of on the skids a little bit. And they were out of scripts and, and desperate for ideas in a hurry, and I was broke <laughs> and, uh, and eager to try to fill that uh, gap. Uh, uh, and we came up with the idea of the Bride of Frankenstein and uh, uh, of giving him a, a bionic mate. Uh, and that's where it came from. And very quickly, yes, it, we, we did realize, oh, my God, uh, I think when it really hit was when the first two-parter of the bionic woman aired on the Six Million Dollar Man, uh, at which you'll recall she died at the end. Um, when I wrote the script... You know, I, I called up uh, Harv and, and the network guys, uh, Freddie Silverman was running ABC, and I said, you know, I think it's a mistake to kill her off. I think maybe we should just leave her in like a deep freeze limbo somewhere. No, no, they said, we want her dead. Uh, <laughs> and, and that was the year that I think Love Story, that movie had come out, and uh, everybody was just in tears over the death of the girl at the end, and that's what they so, wanted. So, so they thought she had to go the way of Ali McGraw because it was exactly. like Christ. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it was. It was in the air at the time. And I said, guys, this is a mistake. No, kill her off. Okay, cerebral hemorrhage in the most advanced medical facility in the United States. She was very friggin' dead. <laughs> just, just another quick question about the Hulk, Kenny, because I'm, I'm, I'm very eager to get to uh, talking about uh, V a little bit. Is um, I, mean, I mean, movie makers seem to have really struggled with bringing the character of the Hulk to the big screen. Um, as he's more of a Frankenstein's monster Jekyll Hyde figure than a traditional hero. Uh, have you got any advice that you give to filmmakers about how to approach the character? Because it still seems yeah. to be your version that people go back to the most. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And, and just, uh, just to, for one second to pay off the bionic woman story for you... Um, 
the, the, the network in the studio hadn't really realized how successful it was until uh, the letters started coming in from people all over the country. Uh, and my favorite one came from the head of the psychology department at Boston University who said, how dare you create this female archetype, this brilliant young woman role model for young women of America and, and just toss her away and that had some impact but I think what had the most impact was that the ratings of the six million dollar man shot up into the top ten for the first time and everybody said oh we better keep going with this but uh, to answer your question about the Hulk um, transforming uh, a comic book into something successful on, on the screen either big screen or small screen uh, has a very checkered and generally unsuccessful history if, uh, if you look at it very few shows that originated as comic books uh, have succeeded uh, back in the 50s of course there was Bat you know, there was Superman and uh, uh, and then Batman uh, for a time in the in the 60s both of which though came from iconic sort of comic books the Hulk was not that big a seller as a comic book. Uh, it had sort of gone out and hadn't gone anywhere. Um, and when I tr sort of tried to come up with this humanistic approach to it, uh, I think that's what really captured the, the audiences. And when they tried to turn it into a the big screen movie, naturally, they think, well, it has to be bigger and, uh, to be better. Uh, but my feeling is that uh, when you, as soon as you try to use a, um, a CGI character in the real world, you're in really, really dangerous territory. Uh, because um, uh, the perfect example, I think, is take one of the great Shrek movies that that we've seen. That how strange would it be if all of a sudden, in the middle of a Shrek movie, there was a real human being walking around? Right. You know, you'd go, wait a minute, this doesn't work. This is a disconnect. Uh, and and with the Incredible Hulk movies, that was one of the big problems that they faced was the the fact that no matter how brilliantly executed the uh, the creature was, he was still a CGI creature, and you knew it. And you can get away with that when you're doing Lord of the Rings, when you're doing Harry Potter, when 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 you've got uh, a world of fantasy, clearly fantasy that you're involved in, uh, you can get away with my precious and all of those you know wonderful creatures. Features, uh, that Peter Jackson did, but you can't take, I don't think, a big CG creature and plop it down uh, in the middle of the streets of San Francisco and expect an adult audience to buy into it, you know, and that's why both of the movies failed uh, miserably at the box office. I mean, I think it's interesting that, I mean, I know that um, with the second movie, Edward Norton said that he was primarily a fan of the TV show and that he was very vocal about trying to inject um, a lot of the kind of iconographical moments, certainly, well, you from know what? the show. They, they, I, I heard many of those, several of those interviews, uh, uh, people passed them along to me, and I was very flattered by the lovely things that they said, and, and I have a great respect for both the director and also for Edward, uh, who I think is not only a fine actor, but also quite a good writer, and who did quite a bit of work on the script, I'm told, and I thought, you know, 
these guys might just get it. And, um, and then when I, and then I saw that they had actually gone back and reconstructed sets to match exactly the, the sets and the shots even that I used. Yeah. The- yeah. I mean, you see him in the gamma chair. I know. It's amazing. You know, I mean, they built that whole thing. I found one out at the Tarzana Medical Center. <laughs> you know, we couldn't afford to <laughs> that and but you know when I, and I saw those those shots and I and I but more than that I I uh, I got a sense from from Edward and also his body of work that he was really interested in doing a psychological drama which of course I had been in, out to do and I thought you know this could work and then I saw the trailer and for the first two-thirds of the trailer I thought son of a bitch they really might have nailed it here but mm-hmm. then the big green CGI hand comes bursting out of the concrete and your brain goes you know it's like danger will robinson <laughs> this doesn't work and and it falls apart and uh uh it was uh, it was a very flattering attempt that they made but i think that they're they're swimming upstream and it and it really can't be done i mean the the only other one that has really been as successful again aside from the iconic supermans and batmans i think has been spider-man um and uh and and that goes i think to a large measure to the fact that uh, uh you really know that inside that uh that funny costume is a real guy that you really have sympathy for and connection to um and uh, so i think it's it's a very dangerous territory people think you can take an iconic title or some sort of comic book premise and just transfer it onto the big screen but it's really, really a dangerous minefield that you have to walk through, and uh, I would encourage people to try to <laughs> steer clear of it if they want to have it. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll get on to V now, Kenny, if that's okay. It's said that when you first pitched the concept of V, it was not intended to be science fiction. Um, could you tell us a little more about this, and how far did you develop the idea as a non-science fiction project before making the switch? Yeah, I had read a, a novel by Sinclair Lewis, the great American uh, novelist uh, of the early part of the 20th century. Uh, he wrote some really great books, and one of them was a book called It Can't Happen Here. And it was written in the 1930s, um, and it was about a rise of fascism happening in America at a grassroots level, similar to what was going on in Germany and Italy at the time, with the idea, of course, well, this is America, and it can't happen here. <laughs> you know, and of course, it does, and uh, and it was it was really intriguing, and it got me to thinking. Gee, you know, there has never been a uh, a sort of moment in American history where we had a sea change in our in the way we lived. Uh, I mean, certainly December seventh, nineteen forty one, ranks right up there. The, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Suddenly, we mm. were thrust into a different world but even then it was still the world that we knew it was not a world where the government was suddenly in different hands and and i was curious to see how everyday ordinary people would react to extraordinary circumstances uh if they were suddenly living in a in a totalitarian society in america and i fashioned a screenplay a full-blown script very long script as a matter of fact uh about such a homegrown fascist take over of the United States happening here where suddenly we were living in a world where you couldn't trust the people that you were next door to or in bed with even you didn't yeah. know um, and I was having dinner with Brandon Tartikoff one night who was the uh, president of NBC at the time and a, and a good friend and he said well what are you up to Kenny and I mentioned this to him uh, it was called Storm Warnings at the time the title of the piece um, 
And I said, well, I've got this fe- this feature script. And I told him about it. He said, oh, I want to read it. And I said, no, Brandon, this is not television. This is a big movie, you know. And uh, <laughs> uh, and he said, Kenny, let me read it. Let me read it. So he read it, and he just flipped out for it. And Brandon uh, could be incredibly persuasive because uh, he was such a uh, such a genius in so many ways. And and, uh, uh, and he said, look, why don't – he said, this could be a great miniseries that, that could become a, an ongoing series. You could do the stories of the uh, of the French rebel of the uh, the French resistance and uh, and what was going on in the Low Countries during the occupation by the Nazis, uh, but tell it in America. He said that he he got it basically. He he just got it. Uh, and I said, well, okay. And he said, but I'm not sure. I believe that it could be you know a fascist takeover. He said, I'm not sure Americans will under really understand fascism. And I said, well, Brandon, you know, it's not a complicated concept. You shave your head, you put on a brown shirt, and you beat somebody up. You know. <laughs> and he said, no, couldn't it be like in those days, the Soviets or the Chinese? And I just didn't believe that they could uh, sustain a, a protracted occupation of the United States. And, and somewhere along the line, the idea of an alien force came up. And I went, oh, God, guys, no, I don't want to go do more alien stuff, man. <laughs> and, you know, I wanted to live in the real world. And uh, But I went home that night, and I was thinking about it, and I thought, you know, it's kind of interesting because I can still tell the exact story that I want to tell with all the human drama and intrigues and suspense and tensions in the streets of Los Angeles, in the real world. Uh, but what I get in addition to that is all this great sort of eye candy, all these great visuals and uh, that will grab an audience's imagination and say, wow, I haven't seen anything like that on television. And indeed, nobody had at that time. Um, and uh, uh, and so I went back to Brandon and I said, OK, uh, I think I can do it. I, I think I, I can do what you're talking about. And um, uh, and we uh, we went forward, uh, you know, that way. And he said, I told him the story. As a matter of fact, I never let him read the story that I wrote. I sat in his office. I said, you don't know how to read. You guys, you know, you network guys, you don't know how to read stories. Let me tell you the story. <laughs> so I literally sat in his office uh, with him and Jeff Sagansky, who was at the time his vice president and who went on to run CBS and uh, uh, and TriStar and hired me to direct Short Circuit 2, as a matter of fact. And uh, I sat in their office for two hours and told them the whole story. Uh, when I was finished, Brandon said, how long do you think it is? And I said, I, I think I can. He said, it sounds like six hours. And I said, well, I think I can do it in four. And he said, well, look, however long it is, that's what it'll be. So, you know, just go and write it and we'll work it out. I said, okay, man. That doesn't happen too often in uh, in Hollywood, from what I hear. I so. <laughs> no, no, I've, I've been very lucky. I mean, it happened with The Incredible Hulk. It actually happened later with Alien Nation, as I'll tell you. And uh, uh, and it uh, and it happened in that situation with Brandon. And uh, um, and so I uh, I steamed in and wrote the screenplay. Uh, I 19 days later, I well, let's see. I guess I had I'd been researching it and, and plotting it out because I had written the 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 fascist script first. Uh, so I had a lot of the backstory and the history and the characters in my head that I wanted to use, and it was fairly easy to transpose that and, and add the uh, the uh, uh, the element of the alien superpower force, because ultimately the thing that so many studios and networks and people have not understood is that V was never about big spaceships or some sort of reptilian race or that wasn't the important stuff in V. What V was about was power. 
It was about being in power in a hyperpower kind of way where you had this enormous strength, like the Nazis, when they rolled into the low countries and said, hi, we are the Nazis, we are the new guys in town, we're here to be your friends and protect you from the English, you know, and then we're going to go away and leave you alone, right? And um, what I saw was that the story was about power. It was about the people who had power, about the people who sucked up to that power like the Vichy French did during World War II, and like people will always collaborate with the powerful if they think that can, it can raise and elevate themselves. It was also about the people who kept their, it said, well, if I just keep my head down, they won't, and don't bother them, they won't bother me, and I'll go along with it. And then ultimately, it was about the people who said, no, no, wait a minute, this power is being abused, and we have to fight back against it, and uh, even if it means our lives, and they, of course, become the heroes of the resistance who are the, you know, the heroes of the peace. And, uh, uh, and that's what V was really about, was that, that power struggle. I mean, on a connected note, I mean, if, for me personally, I've always felt that the heart of V was the, the Maxwells and the Bernsteins families. Right. And that the, the, I mean, you, you talk about this issue of power, and I think that in, in many ways, I mean, again, this is my, my sort of personal reading of it, that the, the, the character of Daniel was very central to that. He was the kind of the heart and the mind that was being kind of fought over. So, and I mean, one of the things that... that, that that, that I've always felt that they did very successfully was in um, presenting an ensemble. The, you, you, the audience really gets a sense that these characters are connected through community. So we follow the Maxwells and the Bernsteins, as well as the more traditional protagonists, such as, as Donovan. Now, I mean, was this important to you? Was it a tough sell um, at all? I mean, it sounds like you had, like, you know, relatively speaking, an easy ride in this department, but was was it a tough sell to, to, to get this this miniseries done as an ensemble as opposed to being a, a, a clear protagonist driven storyline it was certainly unusual at the time nobody had really done it before um, and <clears throat> one of the things that I explained to uh, to Brandon when I sat down to tell him the story was I'm not going to give you any names here I'm going to call them the cameraman the intern uh, you know, the Jewish father, the Jewish son, uh, you know, I'm going to call them by by what they are uh, so that you don't get confused as, and try to remember all the names because you never will. Uh, there was even a character guide at the beginning of the script to help people because there were there were like 65 characters in the piece. <laughs> but part, that was part of what I wanted to do was to show a spectrum of humanity and uh, and present them in a way so that everybody in the audience, young and old, would have somebody in the cast that they could say, oh, I think that one is me, or oh, I think she's me, or oh, God, I hope I wouldn't be him, but I might be, you know? And so uh, I wanted to, and you'll notice, too, uh, another one of the things that has always made V unique was that there were no presidents, there were no uh, military people, there were no generals and admirals and governors and all of that. It was all told from the point of view of the people on the street in this particular neighborhood or in one of the other two genres, the, the, the uh, uh, plant that they were using, the uh, chemical plant, or the hospital where where Julie was uh, was a biochemist and an intern, um, and so all of the all of these had a very human base, and uh, and I used the the medium of television to show everything else that I needed to show, uh, and that was an intriguing way to go. And when we cast the picture, uh, the cast is listed alphabetically uh, because we we made it very clear to everybody that there was no 
leading role in the piece. Certainly the role of Donovan and Julie and uh, and a couple of others emerged as iconic characters. Interestingly and ironically enough, the, the character that probably became maybe the most iconic or was the character of Diana, the dragon lady, the bad woman played by Jane Badler, who only worked about four days on the on the 50-day shoot of the movie. <laughs> uh, and, and she probably has fewer lines than any of the other characters. Uh, and that's partly because because I elected to try to avoid those scenes you see so often in dramas where we see what the bad guys are doing and planning uh, and uh, that our heroes are not privy to. Uh, and most all of V, if you go back and look at it, is told from the point of view of our heroes in, 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 in the street. And, uh, uh, and that was, of course, one of the advantages of using Donovan as a, as a documentary cameraman kind of thing. And uh, on, on a related note, I mean, when, you, when you're talking about this, this sense of community, Community and, and, and the, the ensemble nature of it. I mean, I, I noticed. I, I, did, I did a rewatch of of, um, of the this week, and I noticed more so that, than before that a lot of the first half of the miniseries is, is, seems to, to me to be preoccupied with the the kind of communal experience of seeing events unfold on television, as as we are informed about the characters through their reactions to what they're seeing. I'm just curious as to was it difficult for you as a director to keep the dramatic momentum going whilst filming what what is essentially a lot of reaction shots no 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 because they were right into it and in many cases i had uh, i had already gotten some of the uh, the material that they were supposed to be watching so that they could actually be watching it and really reacting to it in other cases it was just me you know off camera or uh, our script supervisor uh, you know talking them through it and uh, uh, so that they could get a sense of, of what it was and also you know i was very careful to hire really good actors uh, i you know the the, uh, the one of the most exciting days I ever had in my entire career was when my editors told me they had the first assembly ready for me to see uh, of the picture after I had uh, finished shooting it. Um, and that, at that point, there were no visual effects done. There were no lasers firing. There was no matte paintings. There was none of that stuff. It was just the actors working. And I sat there for three and a half hours in that screening room, and all of us were just blown away because the performances were so solid and so electric and so spot on that uh, that the the drama just grabbed you by the throat, and and all the rest was just going to be gravy, and I and I knew that, and and, and truly it was. And the uh, the frustrations though that I had, and we should I should address those because that's what I'm trying to correct in these days. Uh, the frustrations that I had was that as successful as the picture was, the miniseries was when it went on, and it was phenomenally successful. The highest rated show NBC had had in two and a half years. It's still in the top 15 highest rated miniseries in the history of television. It is the highest rated piece of science fiction that's ever been on television. It drew in 80 million people uh, when it aired in North America, and when it aired the following year in 1984 around the world, against the 1984 Olympics, okay, well, we beat the Olympics two to one around the world in the ratings. It was phenomenal. And um, uh, sorry, can I, can I just jump in with a personal story here very briefly yeah. about, about um, when it aired in the UK in 1984? I've got a very clear memory about this. I was on a holiday with my family on the, the coast of England when the original mini aired. And as you say, it was, it was when the LA Olympics were on. And the, the hotel had uh, no televisions in any of the rooms, but there was a communal screening room. And we'd all seen, tra uh, the guests in the hotel had all seen trailers for, very enigmatic trailers for the, in the week leading up to it. 
And for the first night, there was a real battle going on in the TV room as to whether we were going to watch the Olympic highlights or watch V. And then eventually they went out because all of, you know, us younguns wanted to watch the thing with the lizard people. So we, uh, we ended up sitting down and watching that and it became, it was probably my first ever experience of water cooler television because in the, in the hotel for the whole week that we were there, because they showed, or well, what would end up being all five parts when it finally came out in 84. It became a real discussion point for that. So for me, one of my main early memories of V is that it was the TV show that destroyed the ratings for the LA Olympics. <laughs> it's true. It really did. And, uh, and, and the, uh, the critic, it was interesting because not only was it phenomenally successful with audiences and, and popular with audiences, which is always, you know, what you're looking for more than anything, but the critical acclaim was, was just extraordinary, uh, all across the United States and, and around the world. Uh, it, the reviews were just so good and so wonderful and so rewarding to see. Um, but in spite of all of that, the one person that was not happy with it was me. And that was because I had, in spite of the fact that it was at the time the most expensive miniseries per hour that had ever been made for television, I didn't have nearly enough money to make it the way that I wanted to make it. I didn't have the time in which to make it uh, the way that I would like to have made it. Um, and most importantly, I didn't have the tools. The, the tools that we needed, I was using the same guys and crews and people that George uh, Lucas and Steven Spielberg had used on their projects, but we were all sort of trapped in an era when we didn't have yet the, the remarkable tools that are now available, and that's why I'm so enthused about the prospect of, uh, of remaking the original miniseries as a big, you know, big screen, 3D motion picture, uh, which is what we're in the process of, uh, of putting together right now, uh, because the story itself is, is a timeless story of, uh, mm. of, uh, of people fighting back, everyday ordinary people fighting back against oppression. It goes back to Spartacus and the Revolt of the Slaves. I mean, this is a classic story. Um, and uh, the script that I have fashioned uh, was very careful not to try to fix something that wasn't broken, not to try to reinvent the wheel, but rather to mine all of the the essence of my original miniseries that had uh, had struck such a chord in people, and at the same time bring it up so that it lives and breathes in the 21st century, uh, you know, nowadays. And that's what uh, you know that's what we're endeavoring to do. And uh, uh, I must say, when I uh, first uh, uncovered the fact that I actually owned the motion picture rights, I thought they that Warner's had them, and then it's they they sort of kept it swept under the rug. Uh, uh, suddenly, I had a lot of new best friends, and all of the major studios wanted to uh, uh, pay me a lot of money to uh, buy the rights and to uh, remake it in, in their fashion. Um, and uh, I very quickly realized that uh, I was very likely going to lose the creative control that I was concerned mostly about. Uh, and I decided, uh, Paul and Mike, that I would rather that V never got made as a big movie if it got made wrong by the wrong people, because I'd seen that happen when they tried to do The Incredible Hulk, when they tried to remake The Bionic Woman a couple of years ago. Uh, they tried, of course, a couple of times in the 80s to redo V as a series then. They have another series on uh, ABC now. 
um, that uh, is m- more loosely uh, based, I would say, uh, politely, uh, on my project without, <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, and has been very, you know, really struggling to to stay afloat uh, in the ratings because the the first couple of night, the first night it was on, uh, like the first night the, the new Bionic Woman was on, there was a huge tune-in. People really wanted to see it, but then when they tuned in and saw that, wait a minute, this is not what we remember, or it this doesn't. It's kind have- of depressing. It doesn't have the feeling of what we remember. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, I decided I walked away from some very handsome offers from all the major studios to take my project and turn it into a big $200 million tentpole movie, uh, but likely with somebody else directing. <laughs> and I said, no, no, I'm not going to go there, guys. Uh, and they, and so the funny thing is, of course, when you say no in this town, they think it's because you want more money. And, uh, and I said, no, 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 you don't get it. I'm saying no because I really don't want you to do it. Uh, and I'd rather it never got made than got made wrong. And uh, so what we've been endeavoring to do for the last uh, few months is to put together an independent uh, production, Uh, still a very pricey picture. I mean, it's still going to cost close to $50 million to make it the way that it needs to be made. Um, But we're looking to do it as an independent production and as an independent picture uh, so that I can hang on to the creative control, so that I'm at the helm directing it, and so that um, I can really try to protect my baby because of all the babies that I have been fortunate enough to have that have been successful in, in the film and television business, uh, V is by far the one that's the most important and the closest to my soul, I think. Uh, and, um, so we're uh, so in, in the bottom line, I guess, Paul and Mike, as either of you can uh, write me a check for fifty million dollars, you can be a producer today. Oh, I'll have two. Yeah, well, if, well, if you've got pay, if you got PayPal, we can hook you up tonight. <laughs> I wish, <laughs> Kenny. We're very mindful of your time, and we, we literally have two or three hundred questions for you. So, what I do, so can we do is, if we could do it, just a quick rapid fire thing, because there's a few things that I don't personally, I don't think I've seen discussed elsewhere that I'm very, very curious on a pure um, V nerd level, uh, if that's okay with you. Um, I mean, I mean, first of all, uh, the, the, the pregnancy of the Robin Maxwell character uh, was a storyline that um, got concluded in the final battle in a way that I assume was not what you had planned. Now, I'm curious because this is... Um, in broad terms, a story point that you addressed in the second generation, but I'm just curious, what did you have in mind for that storyline when it, when it, when it first began? How, did you have any idea about how that was going to play out? Well, yeah, with a level of quality. <laughs> <laughs> That uh, did not, uh, uh, you know, once uh, Warners and I, after I had supervised the writing of the six-hour sequel, um, they were uh, concerned that I would uh, not direct it as quick and cheap and dirty, literally those words, uh, as uh, as they had wanted it, because they wanted to get on to have me do something else for them. Uh, and um, uh, and I ended up uh, just saying, realizing we were at a creative impasse, and I stepped away, uh, and other people took it over, and, uh, and all of my friends, Mark and Faye and many of the crew people who worked on it warned me never to look at it. Uh, and so to this day, I have only ever seen about 30 seconds of the final battle uh, or the final bugger, as I refer to it. Um, <laughs> and, 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 I, and I did that. I was channel surfing one day and I came across it and I realized, oh, my God, I can't. They made every mistake they could make in 30 seconds. How could I possibly watch the full, the whole thing? And I didn't. But in uh, uh, the whole I, I heard the, there was this whole ridiculous thing about Elizabeth becoming this star child who suddenly had these magical powers. And it was all such a crock. I couldn't stand it. 
and uh, uh, no, ours was much more based on uh, on uh, on really good writing, <laughs> which got sort of uh, swept under the rug after I left the project, and uh, and the other writers that had been with me left the project. It was uh, it was a very frustrating situation. Another thing I noticed on my rewatch this week was that the the image of the the lone individual um, standing against a larger force is, is really heavily present in that original mini. I mean, we see Julie standing up to uh, Diana Shuttle in an echo of the Freedom Fighter taking down a helicopter in the prologue. Uh, exactly. What is it about this image that's so appealing to you? Well, it was it's it's very very potent uh, uh, th- that image, and I, that's why I bookended the picture with it because I wanted to uh, uh, to really to drive it home because the the important it's the first time that Julie has fired a gun ever, you know, mm. and uh, and because she's a hu- she's a humanist, she's a pacifist, she's a physician for God's sake, you know, as she says earlier on, you know, I'm not a rebel leader, I don't know what I'm doing, but at that moment she realizes that there is there is a destiny that is calling to her that she cannot ignore. She's standing over uh, a child and a wounded woman, and here comes this thing in Adam firing at them, and by God, she may die doing it, but she's going to protect them if she possibly can. And that, of course, is the is, is what wins you the Congressional Medal of Honor. That's the kind of, uh, of heroism that, uh, uh, that to me, was, uh, was quintessential to what V was all about. And Faye's character was based on a real uh, woman in France named André de Jong, uh, who was a uh, 19 or 20 year old nurse in World War II and she became one of the leaders of the resistance and uh, uh, just because she was the natural and that's what I wanted to show. Have you seen any of the new show, Kenny? Uh, I saw most of the pilot, uh, but that's all. What were your impressions? I saw most of the pilot, and that's all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for you here, Kenny, but, I mean, we've covered V a fair bit on our show in the past. We did a, a two-hour episode that was just a, a, a sort of deconstruction, a, a discussion of your original miniseries, and then we did a follow-up episode for that when the, the first couple of episodes of the new Scott Peters produced show came out. And the one thing that came up again and again, and we got a lot of feedback from this, and we got a lot of listeners, actually, after first covering V as well, so thanks for that, by the way. (laughs) Um, The one thing that most people seemed to feel was the key problem was this lack of sense of scale, this lack of sense of this affecting a community and a large group of people. In the new show, it's very much two or three people. It's a police procedural show that happens to exist in this world of flying saucers, and it's it's very broad in that respect. But uh, well, let me let me just uh, tell you one thought about that, and that is yeah. that. Uh um, it just it very clearly was uh, was a different approach and a different take that uh, that Scott and his well Scott uh, Scott of course was was uh, was set free early on in the in the whole uh, difficulties that they've had and they've had it yeah. went through a number of executive producers since then and Scott and I have had lunch a, a couple of times to just sort of have, share our our mutual war stories uh, but uh, clearly it was it was just a very different take without any of my characters or or original storylines and. 
and what I was setting out to do and what I'm still planning to do in the movie too. Uh, and I've made, that was another problem that I had with the studios because, you know, they saw it as a, as a different, as a Independence Day, which of course was a ripoff of V as, as Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich admitted to me themselves. Although oh, they're not shy about that, are they? No, well, how could they be? They, they used exactly the same poster that we did. You know, I mean, my God, uh, they, I ran into them in a parking lot one night after an award ceremony and that they came up to me and introduced themselves and said, hi, we just wanted to meet you, Kenny. We've been ripping you off for years. And, uh, and I said, yeah, yeah, that's right. Where's my cut of your 400 million guys? And we had a good laugh, but I never got a check. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the, uh, you know, what, what I, the, what I wanted to do and what I'm planning to do in this, in this, in our motion picture version is maintain that ensemble. Yes, uh, there is a, the Mike Donovan role is an important role. And yes, we will probably try to find a name actor uh, of some stature that we can put into it. But it is with the understanding that it is still, and it always will be, an ensemble piece because that's what gives it, I think, uh, a great deal of its power. Uh, it's, it's about a group of people and, um, uh, and while two or three of them have a little more screen time than the rest, the bottom line is that without the whole web and network, the piece wouldn't be what it is. Uh, I, I, I read War and Peace about a year before I wrote V, and I never could have written V had I not read uh, and studied what Tolstoy did and how he had this enormous, way bigger than mine, spectrum of, of characters whom he managed to interweave in a way that was just remarkable. And that was one of the challenges that I set for myself when I uh, created the original and will be carrying on into the motion picture version, uh, is to make sure that uh, that, that ensemble feel is is what is really the driving force of the piece. And would you hope to um, c- continue that on into sort of franchise territory and adaptation of the second generation? I mean, does that figure into that at all? Oh yes, <laughs> you know, and uh, my my uh, in a perfect world, guys, you know, we will make a V uh, the movie uh, based on the original miniseries, and and we will follow it up with uh, uh, probably at least two motion pictures based on V the second generation, uh, because there's uh, which I've since turned into a novel after having first written it as a screenplay, uh, and there's a there's a wealth of character development there. It's also unique in that it uh, doesn't pick up. 20 minutes later, uh, like the Bourne Identity does, or uh, or even the Pirates of the Caribbean, but 20 years later, uh, and that gives us a chance to bring in a whole new set of, uh, of characters and actors and still have uh, some of the original cast. I'd probably try to go back to my original television cast uh, and have Mark Singer back playing Donovan and Faye playing uh, her role of Julie because they'd be age-appropriate for it. You know, it's, uh, it's a unique situation. I think, and uh, and something we're very excited about. Last but not least, Paul, do people still? Well, as aside, obviously, do people still approach you about V? <laughs> oh my God, it's it's amazing. Um, I'll tell you a quick Robert England story. Uh, uh, Robert was in um, uh, Freddy versus Jason, I guess, right? Uh, and he was out doing public appearances uh, for it, and they kept setting up these you know press conferences with him and, and audiences, <coughs> and uh, and the you know when people started asking him questions they were all about v you know he told me it was so funny kenny because the, you know the, and finally the the press people had to say look does anybody have a question that's not about v 
and then all the hands would go down. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and Robert says, in spite of all the enormous fame that he achieved through Freddy Krueger, the first thing that people always talk to him about when they come up to him is his character of Willie in V. And uh, and I think it's been the same with me. The way that I can characterize it best is that when I helped Warner's put together the DVD release uh, of my original four hours uh, a few years back, Warner's TV, uh, Warner Home Video thought it was going to be a little cult item that would sell you know, maybe 15,000 units total, right? It sold 15,000 units the first day on Amazon, you know? And uh, and now it's uh, V and Home Video has sold something like two and a half million units for 50 or $60 million worth of revenue. And with, that's with no advertising or tie-ins or promotion or anything. And I put an, e- an email address uh, on my um, uh, director commentary that I did for that DVD. Uh, it was the first time I had done that. And, uh, and, oh, my God, beware what you wish for. You know, it's like... Thousands and thousands of emails from people all over the country, all over the world, uh, a great many from the, from the UK, as a matter of fact. I would say next to the United States, that's where more come from than anywhere else. Um, and I, uh, I since have done commentaries on the Hulk stuff that I've done and on the Bionic shows and on Alien Nation. We did some great DVD releases uh, of the Alien Nation work. Um, and all of them I get emails from, too. But all of the other shows, Bionic Woman, uh, Alien Nation, Hulk, put together, don't come to about 10 or 15 percent of the amount of emails that I get about V. Uh, it struck so many people on so many different levels. Um, and it's, it's just so remarkable to, 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 to have that, um, uh, responsibility for one thing. It's one of the things I tell my, my writing and directing students is that, uh, uh you've got to be really thoughtful about what you choose to write and talk about because, Conceivably, you're going to have a really enormous audience, and so I always urge them toward uh, away from trying to do saw one, two, three, and four, and uh, uh, much more toward uh, you know the humanistic approach and the great directors like uh, uh, William Wyler and uh, uh, Akira Kurosawa, who is my personal mentor and favorite, uh, and the humanism that these people uh, brought to their work, and uh, and I hope that they'll continue in that tradition. Well, Kenny, I mean, we could quite literally talk to you all night. I mean, we've been going for close to an hour, and I think we've probably got through about oh, a, a good fifth of our questions. Yeah, I've had to rate you in a bit. Very appreciative of your time. It's been a real thrill. I mean, we- well, that's fine. It's my pleasure. And if sometime you want to do some more and talk about other stuff, I'm more than happy to. And in the meantime, as I said, as soon as you get the $50 million together, just uh, you know, email it to me, and you'll be producers on the picture. As, as long as your returning to the show doesn't depend upon the, the giving of the aforementioned $50 million, we will have, we've got sorted out. No, that would be absolutely fantastic. I mean, we, we haven't even got onto Alien Nation and lots of other great shows and, and great work that you've done. And I mean, I, I, I grew up on all of your shows. Uh, I mean, V in particular has kind of grown with me as well. I mean, w- when I first saw it, I, I enjoyed it initially for its action adventure elements, but have come to, I mean, like most people who've grown up and have come to appreciate it for its depth and how, you know, as you mentioned earlier on, that it reminds us that the enemy can be, you know, the corrupting allure of power, not little green men necessarily, and the importance of learning from history as well. And it's interesting because one of the things that what you say is that's one of the comments that comes in on emails all the time. I mean, easily a third of the emails I get say that when you know, when they first saw V, they were 10 or 12 years old and they loved it then. Now they're late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, and they're looking at it again and going, oh, 
<laughs> there was a lot more going on here than I realized. And that, to me, is what has uh, been given my work, not only V, but all of the work, uh, a sense of, uh, of timelessness, I think. And why it's become so iconic in many ways is because there's an underlying substance to it that is, uh, that is you know, really deep and hits people at a, a very important emotional level. And that's a good place to end. Thank you very much, Kenneth. Cheers, Kenny. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate it. And uh, the one thing I forgot to mention was the website, but people can just Google my name, Kenneth Johnson, or they can go to kennethjohnson.us, as you know, and uh, find me there. Thanks again, Kenny. It's been an absolute pleasure. pleasure. Good good luck with the film. Oh, thank you, my boy. Take care. Bye-bye.